Welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I'm Jinx, your co-host, and I'm here with Paul Farrell. Paul, how are you, man? How's it, how's it going? It's been a week. How you been? I'm doing good, man. Happy to be here. Happy to be talking some Hammer. All right. Yeah, as always, of course. Now, uh, Paul, guess what? What's that? So I got, and I'm not bragging at all. I'm just, I'm, 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 there's a reason I'm bringing this up. Actually, the reason is kind of twofold. We'll see how it goes. But I got my first COVID shot a couple of days ago. So, uh, yeah, it is awesome. I feel very fortunate. I'm lucky. I'm not, uh, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not complaining even a little bit, Paul, but I gotta tell you, not feeling that great right now. You know, arms a little sore. I'm a little under the weather. You know, I, I wouldn't trade it away, you know, um, at all, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's beating me up a little bit. So, you know, Paul listeners out there, if, if I seem a little, uh, little less jinxy tonight that that may be why but i gotta tell you if you have two or three or maybe 60 seconds let me tell you how to possibly swing a covid shot of your own uh grab a pen and paper because this is important because i know we all want out of this fucking nightmare i'm in florida right now as i understand it it's happened all around the country but there are loads of covid vaccines going into corporate uh you know kind of like chain pharmacies i'm talking about your uh your cbs your rite aid your Publix, uh your winn dixie and uh basically what happens is they get so many shots and they're appointment only and they're going by the first phase paul so you know if you're 65 and older or if you're a frontline worker you're basically able to call in and schedule a shot for yourself right now here's the thing. Once they open up all those vials, uh, they have to be used by the end of the day. Otherwise, they go into the trash. Inevitably, people are going to call in and cancel. They're not able to make it in for whatever reason, or they decide against it because uh, some anti-vaxxers changed their mind. Who knows? If you were to show up, Paul, about fifteen to thirty minutes before that pharmacy closes. Call around to all of your local chains. See if they're giving the COVID vaccine. See when they close. Show up, obviously wearing a mask, 15 to 30 minutes before they close, and ask if they've had any cancellations. Ask if they have any leftover vaccine. If they do, you will get your shot, you'll get your card, and you will have your second dose secured for four weeks later. That's how I did it. So, you know, I'm just throwing that out there. Any listeners out there, if you can benefit from that, please do. Give it a shot. It may very well work out for you, and I hope it does. That's great advice. Paul, I, I wish that for you too. If indeed you were, uh, you, I, you know, I, I, I sounded judgy earlier. If you're an anti-vaxxer, I completely understand. <laughs> no, I'm not. Not I can't wait to get my vaccine. Uh, I work in retail, so the sooner the better, because I'm I, around oh, people. Oh my God, yes, please. Okay. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Paul, guess what else? What else? We have a guest with us this evening. I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited about it too. In addition to writing Monster Squad, celebrating the artists behind cinema's most memorable creatures, our guest is also the managing editor of Daily Dead and can be heard on their podcast, Corpse Club. Paul, let's put our hands together and welcome to the show, Heather Wixon. Hello, guys. I didn't know I was going to come on and get some medical advice, so I'm I'm very pleased. You know, uh, I feel like, I feel like I'm already getting something out of this. <laughs> 
It's not something we do every episode. I just, uh, you know, we're all sharing this collective nightmare together, and the sooner we all get out of it, I figured the better. So uh, now I said welcome to the show. I actually should have said welcome back to the show because longtime listeners will remember that Ms. Wixon was one of our very first guests on the previous iteration of Scream Addicts all the way back in, um, oh my God, I want to say like 2016. Heather was kind enough to come on and chat about Fright Night. I was, and now we're back for more vampire goodness. So I, I clearly have a brand, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it's a good brand. It's a good brand. <laughs> Thank you. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on this evening. We really appreciate it. Now, I'll go ahead and give you the rundown on what this new iteration of uh, Scream Addicts is like. Since Paul and I have been doing uh, Hammer Pub, basically we've been running down the line of all the Hammer releases in pretty much order. Like, we we don't really do the swashbucklers. We don't do the thrillers. We're pretty much sticking with the uh, the Hammer Horror, you know, with capital H titles. And, uh, you know, now we're on to Dracula Prince of Darkness, which is kind of cool. Uh, basically what we do, you know, we take a minute to run through what we've seen in the past week, horror-wise. Uh, it doesn't have to be Hammer-related. Then, um, you know, because it's called Hammer Pub, we elect to have a couple of drinks or not. You know, we can teetotal, and I've certainly done that before. Not often, as Paul can tell you. And, uh, you know, basically we uh, we chat about the movie as we watch along with listeners out there. And sometimes the conversation can stick to the movie we're watching. Oftentimes, about halfway through, we'll start digressing pretty heavily, and Paul will get really personal and, uh, oh, you know, yeah. just, yeah. uh, yeah, Classic perspective. <laughs> yeah. He'll reveal yeah. deep, dark secrets. He'll start bashing the lead character and <laughs> dragging to hell. <laughs> it's a, I would never dream of doing such a thing. That's a, that's a <laughs> Christine's amazing. Yeah, it's either him or me, one of, one of us. Uh, but yeah, no, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, you know, what a hammer it is, huh? It's one of, uh, it's one of John Carpenter's more underrated efforts, uh, sure, but it's a uh, <laughs> the hammer. Yeah, I, I guess, that's yeah. joke. <laughs> I thank you. Good. Like five people out there in listener land are giggling right now. Only five. And then there's uh, like a bunch of other people. Like, wait, I thought he just did vampires. I didn't <laughs> think he did. <laughs> no, that one had uh, James Woods in it, so we don't talk about it. Yeah. Uh, no, I love vampires, even though James Woods is in it. Um, no, I, you know, I gotta say about Dracula Prince of Darkness before we dive in, it's a Hammer film that, and I adore Hammer, Prince of Darkness has always left me a little bit cold, at least compared to a lot of the other Hammer films, until maybe this viewing, uh, and, and we'll get into that later, but, you know, I, I, I've had some complicated history with Dracula Prince of Darkness, I can't wait to dive into it once we begin the commentary, but, uh, but before we do that, Maybe we've seen some cool stuff in the past week. I don't know. Heather, can you start us off? Have you seen anything cool horror-related-wise in, in the last seven days that you would um, recommend or not? Genre-adjacent, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, I finally caught up with Greenland. Oh, yeah. I saw that, too, this week. And I I don't know about you, Paul, but I was really surprised by it because I was sort of expecting the usual big old loud disaster movie um, and it's really more of like a character driven drama. Yeah. And I really, really loved it. Like I'm, I'm surprised at how much I loved it. And they, they do a really good job of sort of balancing the spectacle of what's happening in the movie. Cause basically there is, sorry, cause there's like another movie that I just wrote about. There are comets. Cause another one I wrote about, it was an asteroid coming to hit earth, uh, which was like a Sundance movie. Um, so there's a comet basically 
on a collision course with Earth. Like, and it's just coming. There's just, there's no stopping it. There's no Bruce Willis. It's happening. Right. Um, and so it's, it basically follows this family as they've been picked to be part of, like, the survivors because um, Gerard Butler is, like, a, a structural engineer. So they need people to be able to help rebuild society once this all passes. And But then his family is disqualified because his son has diabetes. So then it's, like, them trying to figure out, like, well, how do we get through this? Are we going to make it? Um, and the thing is, it's, like, the stuff with the comet, and there's some really fantastic sequences uh, with visual effects that they, they pull off in this movie in terms of, like, debris hitting the Earth and, like, just totally annihilating cities, which just always – that kind of stuff really gets under my skin. Um, but the worst parts of the movie is really – humanity <laughs> it's, yeah. it just shows like all the stuff that we sort of dealt with this year is kind of it's not surprising now in retrospect because i think we've learned that in a lot of cases when our backs are up against the wall like humanity is humanity's biggest problem i think and i think this movie does a really great job of sort of exploring that um in a way that feels very real and very very nerve-wracking in a lot of ways like there is a sequence in a pharmacy that I was just like, Oh my God, like I, I was so tense. And then, uh, David Denman, I think is his name, uh, who played Pam's boyfriend on the office. Uh, there's a whole sequence involving him and his wife as, uh, they rescue Morena Baccarin from Deadpool and their son. And it's just, it's such a, it was such a surprising experience for me, uh, to go into because I really, was sort of expecting a geostorm scenario, and it's not that at all. It's really freaking good, uh, and Gerard Butler's really, really fantastic in it. Um, although I think I've, I've come to learn that I've, I very much appreciate like scuzzy Gerard Butler. <laughs> I think that's my favorite Gerard Butler because then immediately yeah. after we finished Greenland, I was like, I want to watch Den of Thieves. Um, so we had like an S- <laughs> we had like a little Gerard Butler slash STX double feature that night. Nice. It was it was a good way. It was a good way to spend your evening. Um, but it's really good, and I, I recommend it to anybody who out there who's sort of dismissed it as like sort of another day after tomorrow type scenario where it doesn't go as deep as it could. And it's sort of all about the spectacle or it's, you know, it sidesteps any of the silliness of, you know, something like Geostorm. Um, it's really good. I, I, I do recommend it a lot. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up Greenland. Um, I watched it this week too. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of like end of the world movies. <laughs> as oh, weird yeah. as that sounds. Uh, one of my favorite subgenres. Um, I'm also even, somebody even that this like past year, Paul. Yeah. I still love them. Uh, and, and, well, a lot of times too, though, these movies are as much about hopelessness as they are about hope. Uh, and, and I would say like, you know, this is a movie too, where you talked about how it's about, you know, humanity is humanity's biggest problem, but it's also, our greatest strength um, because for as many awful people doing awful things like this movie also shows a lot of people going out of their way to do amazing things um, and, and doing heroic things that they'll never be sort of honored as heroes for, but the impact they've made is indelible and, and will make a big difference whether people know about it or not. And I think, so it, it's complex, right? Like, like humanity and, and what we're here for and what we're capable of is a very complicated thing. Um, and this movie has some of the best elements of those types of movies. Like it reminds me a bit 
they're very different movies, but they also have some similarities. Um, I'm a big Deep Impact fan. <laughs> I, I know, I know what you might say about Deep Impact, but I really like it. And uh, it was, I was the right age when that movie came out to have it really impact me. Uh, no pun Deeply? intended. Deeply? I know, I know. Uh, uh, but anyway, th- this movie is sort of like if you took the la- the third act thing in Deep Impact about people getting drawn by a lottery to go into caves and just like made that a whole movie. That's kind of what this is. And that's one of the most like harrowing elements of Deep Impact. Um, and and, it, and th- this movie is incredibly stressful in the best ways. Like you mentioned, oh. there's a couple of scenes where like I cannot remember the last time I was as stressed out in a movie as I was like during some of those scenes i don't want to spoil them by going into what they are but my god like my wife and i were watching it and she was like she's like i do not like how this movie is making me feel (laughs) i "I understand but it's so good yeah Um, but yeah no i i absolutely loved it i i i'm surprised that it wasn't heralded as as i don't know as as better than what i kind of got the impression that it was i i think maybe sort of the malaise of pandemic life yeah, it was just on everybody like when this movie because it came out, I think, in like October because I didn't get a chance to review it for like the regular release um, just because I was so focused on like more horror stuff. But I think maybe sure. just sort of the general malaise of like us all feeling like we're already living through something. Um, yeah. But I do I do I do think what you said about it being about hope is important because it is um, because like what are we even, you know if you're watching a movie about the the end of the world, like you got to give some, you got to give viewers something to make them want to watch it. Like it's right. Like, it can't be about the night. Hold on to. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that very much is there. Um, so if anybody's feeling sort of, you know, as we're entering almost a full year of pandemic life, you know, if you're looking for sort of that little beacon of hope at the end of the tunnel, um, I, Greenland might actually give it to you in a weird way. Yeah. I need to see it. I really do. I, I've tried to, I, in a weird way, I've sought out certain types of stressful movies because as you mentioned, you know, it is cathartic, but other types of movies, like I remember early on everyone watching The Stand and Contagion and I was just like, guys, I can't do it. I just, I can't right now. Uh, I still yeah. haven't even watched The New Stand because I'm not, I'm not ready to you're, deal with You're not story. missing much. I, I've heard that too. I yeah, do want to see, I've heard that, heard that uh, Stephen King wrote a brand new chapter. So part of me, just kind of wants to watch that chapter and let the rest of it kind of, you know, just. I read up on what it was and I'm not all that. I'm just kind of like, oh, okay. I, cause I, they sent me the first four episodes to do an interview. Um, and I was immediately bothered by the structure. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I've heard. Ugh. And I, from what I've heard, it just did not get any better from there. Um, mm. But I, I will say I'm trying to I'm totally blanking on the kid's name who played uh, Harold Lautner in it, um, but he was fantastic. But they made it very Harold centric, which was very a very odd choice. I thought. Really? Yeah, like you know, sort of your your template for uh, internet bros, I guess, is the best way to. I was going to say <laughs> he, he's not the guy that you want leading that story, like. That's 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 yeah. curious. But okay. it was it's a kid who played um one of the friends from It. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. It's Owen something or other, and I'm totally not I can't believe I'm uh Owen Teague, that's who it is. Uh he played um oh gosh, 
the one who gets taken in the first movie, uh, Patrick Hockstetter. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And he's really good. Um, they give him a lot to do work with, but I just felt like a lot of the other characters just didn't get a whole lot to do. And then it's like they just sort of introduce characters into the story without any sort of introduction. So like scenes would just start and it'd just be people talking. And it's not even like this the way of like saying like where characters would sort of cheat the scenario and say some they'd call somebody their name. Like they would just be in mid-conversation. It was really strange. So you I felt like you really had to be a fan of the stand to know a lot of what they were doing in this new one. Gotcha. So it's a big bummer because that's like my favorite Stephen King book. I was gonna say how, you know, we the Mick Garris adaptation in the mid 90s i still kind of loved but also part of me wanted to i know they were uh sort of toying around with the idea of doing a a big screen version of it like maybe a a trilogy or something like that and i i still kind of want to see that version you know i want to see uh god knows how long it'll be before we possibly see that now after uh i know know, the dark tower and then after this television version is kind of uh you know left people cold but um I don't know. I, I still have my fingers crossed one day, someday that we'll see a uh, definitive big budget, big screen version of that story. But I'm going to have to hold our breath a little bit for it, I think. Yeah. yeah and apparently they're sort of setting up, a, I think, a sequel to this series in a way. What? Yeah. From what I read about how where the last episode goes. How, how, how would, but what, okay, I guess I am going to have to watch it now because that's yeah. kind of fascinating to me. Damn it. Yeah. All right. It's I an, guess it's I'll... interesting. So, but I think, I honestly think they did that so that they, if it went well with the ratings, that they could come back and do another seek, uh, another follow up. Yeah. All right. I may give it a shot. I tell you something I did actually watch and did not avoid. I actually ran toward it with uh, arms wide open this past week. I caught Willie's Wonderland. Oh, I'm watching that later. It's I haven't so seen it yet. I, I might rent it tomorrow. Okay, so do you remember back in the mid-aughts, right after the uh, Tarantino Rodriguez movie Grindhouse came out, that you had all of these home video releases and these movies that were made that kind of adopted that faux Grindhouse aesthetic? I don't know why. Like, Grindhouse made about $17 at the box office. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very successful, but everybody wanted to do it. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. it was so cool. Like, it, it was just so much fun that I, anything that even smacked of being kind of Grindhouse, I remember trying to seek it out. And more often than not, my, uh, my enthusiasm was not rewarded, but it was still a fun time, you know? Willie's Wonderland... Without the sort of affectations, without the, the 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 fake scratches and the cigarette burns and all of that nonsense, it feels right at home with all of those post grindhouse movies. Like within that sweet spot, the first couple of years after that, you know, might have come out right before Machete was actually made into a movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yet, it, it it's so much fun like Nicolas Cage I, I'm not sure if you've seen the trailer for it um, I don't know how well known this movie is they're charging on VOD, VOD for it right now as though it were meant to be a widescreen like uh, release you know it, it's they're charging 20 bucks uh, per rental and so you know to me I remember when um, oh they started doing the uh, the video on demand services or rather the <laughs> theatrical release on demand when they released uh 
oh, early on, like The Hunt and The Invisible Man and all those movies. You know, 20 bucks a pop, it seemed like, you know, reasonable enough, you know? Movies that were meant to play on the big screen but ultimately didn't or only did for a small amount of time. Now you get to watch them in the comfort of your own home. 20 bucks, that's fine. So with this, I don't know, was it meant to be a, a, a big screen release? I'm not sure, but damn it, I would have paid to sh- <laughs> to see this movie on a big screen because it is an absolute blast. Nicolas Cage plays a, uh, how to describe him? He plays a gentleman whose car breaks down and the only way he can pay off getting his car fixed is to work after hours in kind of this, uh, very five nights at Freddy's kind of establishment with animatronic animals. Uh, it's very Chuck E. Cheese in a way. It's long since been abandoned. He's hired by a shady guy to work after hours to clean it up for a reopening. And when he's stuck inside there, the animatronic uh, animals sort of come to life and begin attacking him. And you eventually find out what their backstory is. And of course, the supernatural is involved. And there's a group of teenagers who sort of uh, stick their noses in where they probably shouldn't have. And so they wind up being kind of a cannon fodder, as it were. And the whole thing is an absolute blast. Cage is having so much fun in this movie. And it's always fun to watch Nicolas Cage have fun. I think, uh, he's essentially playing a, a man with no name kind of character. Uh, although he's more janitor with no name in it. Um, doesn't speak a word of dialogue in the film. It's, 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 and yet it's still an amazing performance. He's brilliant in it. They let him go completely nuts in the film and it works. You know, sometimes, uh, Sometimes Crazy Cage doesn't work. Sometimes it goes a little too far. Uh, in this one, it, he's 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 right at home. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I to talk about the movie anymore would spoil it. I think, and that would be the last thing I would want to do. If you watch the trailer and you think it might be your bag, let me assure you that it most certainly is. Definitely give it a shot. I know the twenty dollar price tag seems a little steep, but if you give it a shot, you're you're. I I I, I think you're going to appreciate what you get. And I hope there are sequels. I really do. I, I, I want to see more movies set within that world. So that's all I'll say other than, you know, just I'll give it a thumbs up. Interesting. Yeah, I've, um, I, I'm on the fence because I really want to rent. Um, I know it sounds, it's not horror, but I really want to rent Barb and Star. Go to Vista, Vista oh, Del Mar. Yeah, yeah, yes. But it's also I, 20 bucks to rent. I'm just like, oh, boy. I, um, I rented Barb and Star last night. And How, is it is it as amazing as everybody says it is heather it is <laughs> one of the best things ever in existence okay. it is so funny um and it's i mean i love like irreverent comedy it, it's kind of like it it's like a an, a, an anchorman austin powersy kind of thing but from a female perspective um, huh. and, and shedding all of the like dumb masculine toxicity that those movies exude in lieu of just like much more pure, amazing, irreverent humor. Um, and it's, it's just so refreshingly hilarious and bizarre. Um, I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> is this is this the movie that's going to make me finally like Jamie Dornan? Because I have not seen anything in in my life, and I say, I, and I love the Benson Moorhead guys, but I, I, I wish anybody else had been in that movie in synchronic <laughs> than him. It's like I just cannot connect to that dude whatsoever. So I'm just, 
is this the movie that's going to make me like Jamie Dornan? I think this is it. I okay. think this is it. Yeah. All right. I've been waiting because I, I agree. Quite a bit. I agree with you on on that front in other movies, but this movie is something special. Okay. Um, Talk it's, me through it. Yeah. I, it's so do I blow truly, up my work tonight and watch this? I, I yeah, I would. <laughs> You're like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I only have it for 48 hours, and I'm thinking about watching it after we're done here again. You just um, Prince, Prince of Darkness and just going to do a commentary? I mean, we could just go straight into Barb and Star. Star. I would be fine. Wait I hope second. we get a... Hang on. <laughs> By the way, can you all hear the rain that is pounding down around me right now? I can now. Yeah, now that you said something, it is, I didn't hear it, it before. Is, it is a dark and stormy night here. I'm just throwing that out there, which is kind of perfect to watch a Hammer film. Speaking of which, um, now, of course, our listeners won't be privy to this because uh, we just started recording, but they don't know that we've been talking for seven and a half hours already about any number of things that does not involve Hammer. So my question is, shall we go ahead and bypass the other couple of uh, movie recommendations about films we've watched this past week and jump right... Oh, my God, this rain. Are you... What is happening with weather in our country this do you, week? Do you yeah, hear this? Yeah, that's really loud. <laughs> Mother Nature is done with us. I, Are you I sure really you're do not believe in a hurricane right now? You're well, safe, right? You don't want to get your bliss. That's all I'm saying. Um, just got my fingers crossed here. We'll see if I make it through the entire movie. You know what? If I go dark, just, uh, just carry on without me. Remember me fondly. Sing songs with me. Um <laughs> Tell you what, let's go ahead, let's dive into Dracula, Prince of Darkness, before I get swept away by a typhoon. All right, folks out there, whether you're watching on Blu-ray or streaming services, I'm just kidding. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, is available on no streaming service currently. So if you're watching this, it's going to be, you know, going to have to be on an old uh, VHS, it's going to have to be on DVD... Or it's going to have to be on one of the two Blu-rays that exist for the film, the one that was put out by Millennium about a decade ago, or the new Screen Factory version. Uh, so let's go ahead and sync up to the very first frames of the film. I'm going to press play here and pause on. Let's see here. Okay, so the very first frame, it is a fade-in on what looks to be a castle, at least from what I can see through the darkness. Okay, so let's pause and let's all press play together in five, four. Wait, is everybody here ready? Oh, no, sorry. Mine's doing a quick thing because I have the Millennium Disc. Oh, you're good. You're good. You're good. Yes, sorry. So it's doing the Studio Canal thing. Hold on one second. Studio Canal. Gotta love them. They've, uh, they they really do the, the Lord's work over there. And then we get to enjoy it over here. I don't know. Didn't they produce uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway? Uh, I think they might have. Okay. They deserve sainthood for that, if nothing else. Yes. One of so the now great... I'm ready. I'm all ready to be synced up. All right. Okay, everybody out there in listening land, let's get ready to press play together. Paul, are you ready? I am ready. Excellent. Let's count down. It's gonna... Okay. If people out there can't tell already, I'm already slurring. I'm about two drinks huh. in. We'll see how long I last into this commentary before I just turn <laughs> the complete lush. I apologize in advance. Holy cow. Okay, let's go ahead and press play in five, four, three, two, one, and play. Associated right. British Productions Limited presents. It's a mouthful. It sure is, Paul. <laughs> it sure is. 
I, have I, I, I was going to say, uh, that's what she said, but I'll, I'll repeat Oh, there it. you go. That's, that's great. <laughs> Look, all the so, best movies and entertainment always start with a previously on. Yes. Yeah. And, segment. and this wasn't supposed to be in the movie. Um, it was too short for what 20th Century Fox asked for. And they added this in. And it actually cost a lot of money to get the rights to it because a different studio owned it. And then they also had to pay Peter Cushing for his uncredited appearance. And so they couldn't afford to give him a, like his actual normal salary so the uh anthony hines just paid to fix his roof <laughs> in real life <laughs> that was how they paid him to I be able to use it so much oh yeah what is that a reason that right there around the image it's it i've never seen anything quite like it well it was like the the, yes it, it, they did it because the scope was different they that was shot in a different aspect ratio and it didn't fit the frame oh that makes so they sense. had to uh they had to clean it up and sort of hide the fact that they were in different aspect ratios. You know, even watching the sending sequence, I, I just want to go back and watch Horror of Dracula. I, I, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee on camera together, it's just magic. Yeah. And plus, I'll, you know, it's funny. I had not been introduced to Hammer uh, before I saw From Dusk Till Dawn for the very first time. So I remember a moment in that movie when... Uh, Tom Savini tells everybody, like George Clooney and Harvey Keitel and everybody, Juliet Lewis, you know, that all they need to do is put like a couple of candlesticks together, you know, and they can ward off the vampires that way because that's what Peter Cushing is always doing. Had yeah. no frame of reference for that. And I remember watching Horror of Dracula for the first time and seeing this moment right now that's unspooling on screen and being like, oh my God, that's what Tom Savini was talking about. That's amazing. <laughs> So, so Tom Savini has just always been sort of the the backbone of horror between doing effects and giving practical advice for fighting vampires. I think that makes yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> I the other thing I thought about when I was watching this is like you know they didn't have home video back then. Like it had been eight years since audiences saw that first Dracula. You know, so like they I feel like this was also just a good reminder of what happened because uh, there's a possibility that people had simply forgotten. Look at I their title cards are always so damn sexy. Aren't they? Yeah. That red font. They're great. I gotta tell yeah. you, Shudder premiered the uh the remake of Castle Freak recently. I wanna think it was back in mid December. And regardless of what, you know, my, my thoughts on the overall movie, you know, might be. Um the moment that Castle Freak goes up in big bold letters with like the little copyright below it at the bottom, I just I'm such a sucker for stuff like that. It's just it immediately tells you what you're in for, or at least what the aim is of the movie. Yes. Yeah, I wish more people sort of did that. In fact, uh, one of the movies I saw at Sundance this year was uh, The Blazing World from Carlson Young, uh, who used to be on the TV series. Yeah, Yeah. she was Brooke. And um, this is like her feature film directorial debut. And they use like very Hammer-esque, sort of Hammer meets Italian, like credits. Ooh. Uh, for the opening, and I was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, ah, yes, okay, I know where she's going, um, and that very much was was in line with that. So that's cool. Now I gotta say, watching this movie, I I I I'm watching the Scream Factory edition, and it gives you the option of watching the U.S. or U.K. version. I am currently watching the U.K. version. As I understand it, there isn't much of a difference in the edit. You know, just a handful of very minor differences. But I gotta tell you. Yes, the UK version, like the, the the colors are a bit more muted, certainly. But I tell you what it's not. 
it doesn't have a jittery image like it's it's caffeine mm. addict because that's what the US version <laughs> has. I tried watching 10 minutes of the US version on the Screen Factory disc and I thought something was wrong with my eyes. See, um, I think the colors are pop more in the UK personally. I think the colors on the US are really like sort of dull too. That was my issue with the US cut on top of the jittery and it's a lot grainier. Yes, there's much, much more grain. I don't know. It's the especially like in those opening titles. It seems like in the U.S. version, the the titles are much more like red, like a a deep Kensington gore, like appropriately red, you know, for a vampire movie kind of red. And then you know, in the opening credits of the U.K. version, it's a little more, it's a little more washed out. It's a little more uh, you know orangey in a way. And same thing with the green of the forest around it. You know, here it looks a little more muted to me compared to what I saw in the u.s version but again yeah. it, it's 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 not it's not it's not shaking like a coke fiend to me so i don't i don't know it's just you know uh well and and along those lines though um i think some of it too is the title cards that they put into the u.s version were were done like like this like last year well the year this came out digitally they recreated those title cards what? so that might be why they were so bright yeah they didn't actually have the true u.s sort of title cards for it they had to recreate it digitally with a blank slate they had the blank slate but they didn't have the actual title card so they did that they actually create like like struck a new transfer and overlaid those those title cards paul i gotta tell you that makes me twitch a little i don't i don't like that (laughs) yeah they were trying to recreate what it would have looked like you know, uh, the, the they one tried thing to about George this, Lucas, the opening title, really, I they just, like they, that. that's what it would, that's what it was released by Fox. Like it's, it's not really George Lucas in it. Metal crazy. Ball. Uh, the, this, this movie, did you ever notice that the opening here is sort of the inverse of the opening of kiss of the vampire? It's like the same thing, but, but backwards, like, you know, people, it's a funeral for a young girl that was killed. And in Kiss of the Vampire, sort of the righteous man comes in and stakes, or you know, the the body and freaks everyone out. And this one, it's the town wanting to stake a body, and the righteous man comes in and is like, "No, don't do that." You know, you have to know when to kill a vampire and when not to, sort of thing, morality wise. And I just find it kind of interesting that this, as Terrence Fisher returns to the vampire picture, he sort of like inverts what was done in the previous. Paul, you keep talking like I'm going to forget and forgive that you just called me crazy. We're going to deal with You're that crazy. later. Crazy. Huh? <laughs> uh, no, I, I regret cool. nothing. I know. Not yet. Anyway, Andrew Keir is playing Father Sandor here. Paul, just He's because I was 39. Looking... That, that man is, is 39. What? He's oh 39 he years old. I'm, he looks two years older than I do, and I'm in my 30s. I know. <laughs> and and he would, when he plays uh, 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 Quatermass, yep, there he's go. 41. He and he oh, looks like gosh. 65. I'm currently 39 and he looks like my grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's insane. He's great uh, as Father uh, Shandor. Uh, although they misspell his name in the credits. And so know, every time you read Sandor. about him, it's Sandor. <laughs> I always thought all the characters got it wrong. I was like, clearly that's Sandor. What is this shit everyone's doing? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to say, I'm writing an article about it. And I didn't know whether I, put, I should put an H in or not. <laughs> Bernard 
Quatermass. He plays in Quatermass in the Pit, and he is absolutely excellent in that film. Apparently, he had one hell of a hard time making that movie. Uh, he had issues with the director when making it. It sounds like he uh, sounds like he was a sensitive sort, and the the director was a bit of a bastard. So I hope he had a better time with Terrence Fisher, who, by all accounts, was you know a bit of a quiet man and an easy director to get along with. So fingers crossed, the performance he gives here was not born out of any frustration, at least at that level. Paul, I think we need to do a podcasting episode where we drink out of something like that. What the hell is that? Those what are the that? things that they sell at like Walt Disney World and like different yeah. like, theme parks they, and stuff, which is kind of fun because you think that's like a, a modern thing, but it's not. It's like an old school beer bong, kind of. Or like they call them yards. Oh yeah, are they yeah. getting kids drunk at Disneyland with yards like that i don't understand i don't think it's for kids no i don't think it is or like you get them a lot in vegas too because they want to keep you drunk yeah. in vegas i've had yeah, lots they want to of decorations drunk, right. of those things when this um, is over with and the world goes back to normal i am going to vegas i'm going to gamble i'm going to drink uh i'm probably going to get killed in the desert we'll see how it goes but i just i just want to go someplace where there are a lot of people i'm gonna hug a bunch of people is that weird <laughs> No. Not at all. I mean, as long as they consent to it. Yeah, oh, oh I, I will ask first. I will stand on the corner with a sign that says free hugs just for human contact. All right? Okay. I've been in quarantine for 11 months at this point. I'm a little crap. So we're we're in a Hammer pub. We should probably mention that yeah. already. We're in a Hammer pub. Not only are we in a Hammer pub, Paul, but we are in a Hammer pub with, returning from the Gorgon, Barbara Shelley. I love Barbara Shelley in this, and she's... I think she's gives probably the most compelling performance and character arc that the movie has. And maybe one of the most haunting vampires I've ever seen. There's something about the way that she plays, uh, you know, a later bride of Dracula, as it were, that is really sort of kind of upsetting. And to me, it seems like, you know, up until this point, all the various ones that we've seen sort of hint at what we see in all of the other movies of this sort that have come after the Hammer period. What Barbara Shelley does in this movie as a new bride of Dracula to me, it almost sets the template for what we see from this point forward. Also, wasn't she also in Crater Mass? Yes, yeah. And she had a hard time of it there as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually, uh, I looked up, she actually just recently passed away too. Back in yeah. January, I believe. Yeah, very, very recently. Um, which is really a shame. I mean, she she gave a lot of interviews and she actually did a commentary for this movie in like 2012 with uh, uh, Christopher Lee and Francis Matthews and uh, Susan Farmer. Um, and, and it's really interesting because it's just them kind of reflecting on the movie. But they all had just wonderful things to say about Terrence Fisher um, and their time on the film. So I, I think the performances came out of what sounds like a really great and creative experience. Okay, Paul, I hate to interrupt here, or at least I hate to jump in. I need to point out to listeners in the future who are going to be listening to this episode this coming Friday or Saturday or any point beyond, we are recording Monday evening going into Tuesday. In fact, it is currently Tuesday right now, which means we have a birthday to celebrate. We do. Paul, (laughs) would you like to tell the listeners out there who is currently celebrating a birthday at midnight on the Hammer Pub? It would be me. Yay! Um, I'm, I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a birthday guy. 
You know what? I've had a couple of drinks. Thank you for acknowledging that. That was very nice. <laughs> I, I've had a couple of drinks. Fuck it. Why not? <clears throat> oh, God. Voice, We're not even oh halfway gosh. through the Heather, movie yet. <laughs> Heather, 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 if you want to join in, you're welcome. Are we really going off the rails this quickly? Okay. All right. So, oh, gosh. <clears throat> Terrible singing voice, but Heather, if You're you want to join, putting her on the spot. But you don't I, have to. You don't I'll have do to. my best. You don't have to. But ready? Here we go. <laughs> okay. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Oh my gosh. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Paul. Happy birthday to you. I can't oh. harmonize with that voice. I'm Thank sorry. you. I I that is. That was that was great. I really appreciate it. That was so kind. I think I, I, think I injured something in my throat. I, you, you really gave it your all, and I for that I I thank you, sir. That was no, that's cool. That was now, good. would you like to uh, tell folks how uh, how old you are now, or do you want to keep? Uh, that? Sure. I am. I'm 37. I am two years younger than Father Shandor. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I don't know if I should be happy about that or or scared that I'm going to look like that in two years, uh, but. Here I am. <laughs> well, if anybody was going to look like that out of out of the two of us, like it's going to be me, and I don't look anything like that yet. <laughs> yet, I got a little gray in my beard. A bit concerning. Nothing like that. People aged differently back in the sixties. True. In their I, I, I've already I've already crossed the threshold in the forty, and I already look like Father Shandor. So, lies. <laughs> ready. Lies. Uh, Father Shandor is a really interesting uh, sort of diversion from Peter Cushing's Van Helsing, too. Yes. Peter Cushing would not walk into a pub and warm himself by the fire quite in the way that Father Shandor does. No. But I love it because it reminds me of when I was a kid and when I would get out of the tub and I'd be really cold and I would, like, go sit with, like, my nightgown over my, like, the heating vent. (laughs) So I was... Maybe that's nice. something I picked up from this movie because I don't know. But yeah, I was like, when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh my gosh, I used to do that all the time when I was a kid. Thank you, Father Shandor. <laughs> that's funny that you mentioned that, that you might have picked this up from that movie. When did you see this movie for the first time? And can I ask, are you kind of, uh, are you like Paul and I in that you're a big Hammer fan? Or are you kind of a casual Hammer fan? And how did you come to Prince of Darkness the first time around? I am a casual Hammer fan. I need to be better about it. Um, I've I've kind of like the last few years. I've sort of been focused on a lot more like foreign horror, um, just because that was sort of my weak spot. So I've spent a lot of time over the last few years really sort of immersing myself, um, like in you know South Korean horror, Japanese horror, Italian horror, because uh, those are kind of like my weak spots. Um, but I I don't remember how. I know I was pretty young the first time I saw this and I didn't even realize what I was watching probably until like a few years later. Um, but like we used to have like these channels in Chicago that would like play like old classic like horror movies on the weekends. And I don't remember exactly how old I was when I saw this, but I do remember I was home. I was sick. So I wasn't, I wasn't like out, like able to go out and play. So I was like, and I just remember kind of coming across this. It might've been like before, Elvira was on like in terms of the day because like they'd play like one or two horror movies and then they'd show like Elvira. Um, and so I'm trying to remember, but I was pretty young. Um, but I, it was my first, it was actually, this is my first hammer movie I ever saw growing up. And then it just kind of like, like floated away a little bit. And then I re caught up with it like in my twenties and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is this movie I watched when I was a kid. And again, it's because it was hammer. Like it wasn't like these were like, 
they got regular play like on cable channels or anything like that. Um, another way that like I like between consuming horror like through Elvira, for me being in Chicago, another way was like through Svengooli. And I don't really feel like they did a lot of hammer on Svengooli. Um, they did like a lot of straight like you know the you know, old Universals and like a lot of stuff that was like. Uh, like Night of the Living Dead, where it's uh, the you know basically you'd like there's you know nobody has the rights so anybody can play it kind of a scenario. Um, so I'd see a lot of like goofy old movies like that, or like a lot of the old creature features. Um, I, I do remember Food of the Gods was one of the ones I saw on Sanguli, mm-hmm. and that movie freaked me out when I was a kid because <laughs> I thought big giant rodents were going to come and get me someday. Um, so it's it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when I saw it, um, but I did re-catch up with it in my twenties. Um, I rented it like on a weekend at like family video and they had some like crummy DVD of it or something like that. And I was like, and it was like one of those, like, I didn't remember that I'd seen it. And then as soon as it started playing, I was like, oh my gosh, this is that movie. Um, because you know, back then it was like, you had either like, if you didn't catch the movie at the beginning, like you, you know, you had to either like pay attention at the end or like try to find it in your TV guide. To sort of put the put the pieces together. There was no Google Kids, um, so I remember like renting it in my twenties. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I totally remember this." Um, so I, I mean, I've probably, I probably maybe have only seen like ten or so Hammer movies, um, but it is my favorite. Uh, I just there's something really interesting I, I think about Christopher Lee's performance in this movie, and I know there's been a lot of debate whether or not he decided to throw out his this, the the dialogue that was written for him. I know uh, there was an in, uh, an interview with the screenwriter who is Jimmy Sangster, who said, you know, because I think Christopher Lee said something like he didn't have dialogue and or no, it was Christopher Lee said he threw away the dialogue and Jimmy was like, no, I never wrote you dialogue. So there was a little bit of a back and forth between them. Um, yeah. I don't know who to necessarily believe in that scenario because it's, you know, egos probably are come to play a little bit in that that situation. Um, but I just, there was something really scary about a, like a vampire who didn't talk to me because, you know, even basic Dracula, you know, from the thirties, like he spoke and he was very inviting. And I grew up on vampires who in the eighties were very, you know, they, they did, they did a lot of talking. (laughs) So to have a vampire that was sort of animalistic, and maybe that was because he was like reborn and he was sort of like a basic, like feral version of himself. Um, I just always thought there was something really, really uh, unique about Christopher's performance in this movie. I do like that approach too. Like I, I, I love the feral Dracula. Like it used to bug me, but actually the entire movie, like I've never been a huge fan of Prince of Darkness until this last rewatch and something about it clicked for me. I, I still have some issues with it, but this is easily the most I've appreciated the movie like on this last rewatch. So I'm, I'm very happy that I've kind of come around on this movie and especially on Lee's performance, because I, I kind of, for every reason that you just said, I, I really kind of dig his performance. Whereas before I didn't, you know, I much preferred the, uh, the gentleman, you know, monster that he was in horror of Dracula. Whereas here you're right. He's very feral. He's like a wild creature and that's cool. But at the same time as you know, I, I respect Christopher Lee. I respect Jimmy Sangster. I love them both. You know, I I don't want to choose a side there. And yet at the same time, like, it's 1966. You know, are you telling me that you were going to cast Christopher Lee in a movie and not give him dialogue? Really? You know? I'm sorry, sorry, Jimmy, but, you know, I, I think... 
Terrence Fisher made the best of a bad situation and took the idea of, you know, a lead performer not speaking and somehow turned that into gold. But I, I can't bring myself to believe that Jimmy Sangster, when he first sat down at the typewriter, decided that his leading man wasn't going to say a damn thing. The um, And, yeah, I mean, I, I'll agree that uh, I love the feral Dracula. I love the animalistic sort of the fact that he died and was resurrected and he comes back as something different. Um, in this movie, he feels almost like a phantom, like a specter. Yeah. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't feel like a, a person. Any pretense of humanity is gone. Um, and I think that's really interesting. The reason I actually, just to play devil's advocate on the whole, did, did he have dialogue or not? And again, who knows? Like you said, it, it could be either way. But if you look at how the movie's structured, um, when Dracula actually does return to the film, which is really towards the end. Yeah, um, it's, more than it's halfway through the film. You know, late. Yeah, and and then the interactions he has with characters, there really aren't that many moments where there'd be an opportunity for dialogue. Um, so I actually sort of think that the script and and also they have copies of the shooting scripts, like those exist. Um, and you know, every, every image I've seen from those, and I've never seen a script of this movie that has dialogue for Dracula. All of them depict him as being, you know, wordless. So to me, I feel like that script would have surfaced at this point. Um, if there really was an original shooting script with dialogue in it. So I don't know. I, I, I think that it's more likely that it was conceived without dialogue. I think it makes more sense. And I think the movie works better without it. Um, but who knows? Possibly if it is the shooting script, I, I, I could see how Sangster would have excised that before they actually got the set. But, but it, it, like you say, who knows? Like, it, but it does seem like a strange choice to me. And one that even, you know, Hammer was a thriving studio at this point, and Terrence Fisher, even for having started what we know as Hammer Horror in the first place, like he had also delivered a couple of fairly big failures to them by this point in his career, too. It, it just strikes me as odd that the studio wouldn't step in and be like, I'm sorry, our our leading man, the face of the franchise, isn't going to speak in this one? <laughs> well, keep in mind, too, in 1965, Lee was not a household name. Um, it, 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 Cushing was the much bigger star, uh, and Lee was bigger in Europe because that he had spent much of the early sixties making films, you know, in other countries, you know, that's one of the reasons that he couldn't do his cameo in Brides of Dracula because he was off with, uh, you know, making another movie. Um, and in fact, there's some people posit that the reason Cushing's not in this film was Hammer wanted to bolster Lee's star power by not having him be in a movie with Cushing. They thought that it would be better for it just to be Lee and that would make him more famous. And it did. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, whatever they did, it, it definitely worked, you know, not only for the movie, but obviously his stardom too. It just, it, it you know, it was a bold choice then if that were the case, because yeah, I, for them to say, let's go ahead and keep Cushing, you know, our big star out of this to, you know, kind of prop up Lee, but also, Let's not have him speak at all. Let's just have him. Well, yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's weirder that Cushing's not in it. I think that was I a too. weird choice. Um, I and too. I could not for the life of me, like in any of the book, like even when you hear like the hammer historians talk about it, 
they, they're kind of like, we don't know why he's not in it. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, they, it, it really is a bizarre choice, especially given that he does eventually come back to the Dracula films. Um, and, and Fisher was supposed to direct uh, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, but he, you know, he had a, a bad habit of playing drunk chicken with cars. And he got into an accident and broke his leg. Like he would get drunk and play chicken with cars in the street. He was a, a weird thrill seeker in that way. And uh, he, because of his, his accident, he was unable to direct an Dracula movie. And that's why he sort of never went back to the franchise. And he always really regretted it. Um, and by the time that they were making Dracula AD, he actually requested to come back and he broke the same leg again, playing drunk chicken with cars oh again. Oh my God. Yeah, like, so Hammer, eventually, he became a liability. So that's why, you know, in the 70s, you, you don't see Fisher really coming back to Hammer. It wasn't because they didn't like him or that he didn't want to do it. They just couldn't take the risk. I feel like these days, somebody playing drunk chicken and potentially hurting somebody just for the hell of it would be a yeah. cancelable offense. Like, oh, yeah. Would... Oh, yeah. yeah. It, like, if it, it came it, out and that James Wan was playing drunk chicken out there, like... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's I never it's liked the soft nuts. movies it's, anyway. It's absolutely insane. When I first read that, I was like, that can't be right. Because when you read about Fisher, he's like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, he was really quiet, really unassuming. He let actors kind of figure out their characters. You know, they call him a great arranger uh, rather than a director, meaning that, like, he allowed actors to sort of figure out the scenes and then block the scenes around them naturally. Um that doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would play drunk chicken. Uh, but, you know, people have uh, dark sides, I guess. He was, he yeah, was repressed. <laughs> and that's, well, yeah, fair. Um, <laughs> but I will say, you know, for the hell of it, last night, I, again, you know, I've never been the biggest fan of Dracula, Prince of Darkness. I, you know, I adore horror of Dracula. Brides of Dracula is tied with Frankenstein Created Woman as uh, my favorite Hammer film ever. Prince of Darkness has always kind of left me a little bit cold, and this time around, I enjoyed it so much, I popped in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave right after, and I gotta tell you, like, I think it's a superior film, and I love what Freddie Francis did with it. Like, I I don't know that I would have, as much as I love Terrence Fisher, and as much as I think the Fisher created what we know as Hammer Horror, and he directed the best film, certainly, in all of Hammer, um, by God, Freddie Francis could knock it out of the park, too, sometimes, and I think that movie really benefits from his uh, his input, and I don't know that Terrence Fisher would have directed a better movie, especially considering some of the wrestling it does with the characters and their takes on religion. Uh, we can get into uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave later on when we eventually do the commentary for it, but I gotta <laughs> say, watching it again, I very much appreciated that movie as well. But uh, but yeah, no, back to Prince of Darkness, I. I really appreciate this movie. I still think it meanders a little bit in the first half of the second uh, act. Like, it, it drags its feet a little bit. But when it works, it really, really works. And, of course, you know, it's like any Terrence Fisher movie. It is drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, look at this big reveal for Clove. It's amazing. That's Which is, like, the best name ever for, like, a henchman kind of guy. Can I ask you both? I Heather, love Clove. <laughs> what do you think of this? Do you think Clove was always meant to be? I mean, obviously not when they were making the movie. I just as far as like this movie is concerned. Do you think Clove is meant to have been there behind the scenes during the events of the horror of Dracula, 
Or if not, how the hell do you think he comes into the story? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know that I have the answer. I can make something up. Uh, But I like, (laughs) here's the thing, because you talk about sort of this air of mystery to him. And I think that sort of the mystery that he brings into this, I think actually serves this, like the first half of the movie really well, since we don't really get to Dracula until, you know, a little bit later on. Um, so I think it, it really kind of is like Clove doing sort of like the heavy lifting in terms of like setting this atmosphere, um, you know, and obviously uh, Barbara Shelley as Helen is really doing a really great job of sort of being the sounding board for that because she, it's sort of her worries about the whole scenario that's really, you know, I would imagine back in the day, like putting, you know, viewers uh, sort of giving them this like the sense of unease. Um, but and yet, yet she really is not the of, final girl. Which well, is crazy. <laughs> but she told everybody, like, we don't need to go in here. And everyone's like, oh, it's fine. She's yeah. the one who oh. objects. She's the one who has the investigative gaze. You know, she's the one who is. You're absolutely right. She's the sounding board for the audience. She's the one who's kind of sounding the alarms. And yet she's not the one who makes it to the and, end. And she's also sort of the model of the prim and proper repressed housewife British woman. You know, like she's she's exactly the person she's supposed to be. And she's trying to warn her husband, who's sort of like indicative of the, you know, the progressively more, you know, the loss of faith that's sort of occurring in modern society, not wanting to believe in anything otherworldly and and thinking like, oh, well, I can handle anything and this, that and the other. And she's she's actually trying to offer some real insight that he's just not willing to hear or see um, until she's eventually freed of that life at which point she becomes a villain but also like maybe a more like true like able to express herself in ways that she was never able to before and i think that's what makes like the vampirism really complex in hammer's vampire movies you know they especially as the 60s turned to the 70s and they started to deal with like sexual repression and you know allowing that stuff to kind of come out once they're a vampire I think she's a really good template for that. Um, you know, I don't think we get something like the vampire lovers or some of the things that they were really trying to do in the exploitation world without her performance in this movie and what that character did. Yeah, Is anybody were... oh, Sorry. I was just wondering if anybody was uh, reminded of Chris Elliott and Scary Movie 2 during that sequence with Clove serving everybody. <laughs> wow. Honestly, to me, what it gave me in it was total like clue vibes. They're like you have people that sort of show up at a mysterious house and then they're like served like a dinner under awkward circumstances. And now they're like, okay, I guess we eat. Um, <laughs> minus, guess, you know, there's no vampires yeah. in Clue. Um, but it, it does sort of bring up like sort of one of my favorite things about movies is like when they have an awkward dinner scene. Um, yeah. I love, I love a good dinner scene in a movie. Um, and maybe again, this is sort of why I like this one because one, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of Fright Night, which was <laughs> you know, one of my favorites. Uh, two, it also reminds me of Clue, one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I just, I love a weird sort of like, oh, this is fine. Like the play settings are out for four people exactly, you know, and we just happened to show up because the horses brought us directly here. And okay, yeah, now this guy's talking about his dead master and that he should serve us still. And, you know, the lights are flickering, but that's fine. Everything's fine. Um, you know, and it's like every like warning signal is going out. Um, which again, I think is why, you know, as much as we talk about Christopher Lee, you know, in this movie and other hammer movies and things like that, 
Like you have to give it up for Philip Latham who plays Colt because he really, again, for a lot of this movie, it's sort of, it's, it's his character that's kind of driving everything. Um, and I don't think, you know, he necessarily gets talked about enough in terms of this story in particular is terms of like just how much it is him setting the tone for everything. Um, but I will say, by the way, uh, Suzanne Farmer here is a vision and she's yeah. adorable and I just love her. And I actually, I think her, um, in, uh, Francis are just like really, really good together in this movie. There's some really nice uh, chemistry between them. And yeah, I want to so. know who Horace Peabody is as well. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's kind of rare. Like you don't often see that level of chemistry between like a leading couple and a hammer flick. No, you <laughs> a don't. lot of times the chemistry is really wooden and like, that's almost on purpose, especially in the vampire films because a woman's seduction by the vampire is always indicative of her sort of repression, lack of satisfaction, you know, yeah. in her relationship. Um, Either that so or I think that is, or if there is chemistry, it's usually a portent of doom, like uh, the curse of the mummy's tomb where, you know, that couple yeah. had chemistry and then she turned out to be horrible. Yeah, true. Um, to to answer your earlier question, though, Jinx, I have a thought on Clove. Um, I, I think about the title, right? So Prince of Darkness, which sort of alludes to Satan, the devil, and a religious sort of right to it, which also ties into Dracula's resurrection in this film, which is performed very much like a ritualistic religious rite, as opposed to something bombastic and exploitative and violent, even though that's what it is. Um, I feel like what they're positing is that Dracula himself is sort of a dark religion that people follow and believe in. You know, the original title of the second film was Disciple of Dracula, uh, which became Brides of Dracula. But ultimately, it's about followers, right? So I think it's believable that there are people out there in the world that know of Dracula, know what he's capable of, and believe in him as a god of sorts um, that might go to him in death and serve him and wait for the opportunity to resurrect him, which is what Clove does. So that that's kind of how I see him fitting into the grander picture. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, part of me thinks about that and thinks that, okay, do you really have essentially a cult? Do you have all these disciples who are willing to buy into this guy as a God who are willing to sacrifice somebody else in order to bring him back to life when he was felled, by a dude wielding candlesticks, driving him into the sunlight pouring through a window. And yet, the last four years have taught me that when it comes to cults and unwavering faith in their leaders, there's really no discounting any action. Oh, yeah. I mean, we saw it in, in, the, in the cinematic classic Blade Trinity. They brought Dracula <laughs> back. Just saying. That's fair. So true. And he got really pissed to see that there was such a thing as Count Chocula in an emo shop. Um, <laughs> that movie was, how do you follow up Stephen Norrington's amazing first movie and Guillermo del Toro's like just transcendent sequel with Blade Trinity? How does that happen? I know, I know we're not talking shit on Blade Trinity right now, right? We're talking a little shit. There's shit being talked. I like just Blade that. Trinity. Blade I, Trinity's fun. Look, I will say this. They have the wrong person cast for Dracula in that movie. That yes. much is evident. Yes. The rest of that movie kicks all kinds of ass. I love um, the the oh, uh, Hannibal King and I love uh, Abby. Is it Abby? Abby and yes. it's been a while since Abigail Whistler. The movie should have been them. And I yeah. think I, you get the feeling that the filmmaker at a certain point in the movie feels like it should have been them. Well, Wesley uh, like an like notoriously difficult to work with on those movies. 
he was a little too methody apparently <laughs> and he did not like the comedic aspects of that film whatsoever and i mean it very much is ryan reynolds trying out for deadpool and i mean i think oh, he's yeah. even said as such where he's he's literally just wanted to always play deadpool so every comic book movie he's done has just basically been like guys i can be deadpool just let me be deadpool and they're like, well, how about you be Hannibal King? No, I really want to be Deadpool. But Green Lantern? No, I really want to be Deadpool. And then they finally get him Deadpool and, you know, any rules. Uh, but, yeah, he and Ryan Reynolds apparently did not get along very well whatsoever on that movie. Ugh. So he was just a very much a sort of a stick in the mud. Um, but I, I love Blade Trinity, warts and all. Um, I, 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 I hate Dominic Purcell, though. He's yeah, I and I usually like him in some things like um, he really, you know, when he's playing a certain type, I think he's fantastic. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed him in uh, The Grave Dancers and I, I really dig him in some of the CW stuff where he plays uh, oh, the flame shooting guy. I don't know his damn name, but he's great. Um, <laughs> I, I believe Trinity is hitting this with me like I I. I I love some of the performances. Like, Ryan Reynolds is amazing. I really like what Jessica Biel does in the movie. Um, Parker Posey. Is amazing. Is oh, my God. Just... Danica Talos. Like, is her character name? Parker it's Posey's so much I always love amazing. Like, Very tr- I just watched... The, uh... three, the, the third sequel is better. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, but it, it's when it comes to the overall story, it's when it comes to Dominic Purcell as Dracula and what they do with Dracula compared to what they could have done. Uh, the action scenes I think are just kind of flat and boring. And, uh, you know, ultimately the big solution at the end of the movie is kind of ho-hum, but I do, I do love moments. And I don't, it's not like it's a terrible movie. I don't think it's even very, I don't think it's bad. And honestly, it has one of the greatest moments in Ryan Reynolds career in it. When he, Spoilers for, what, a 15-year-old movie at this point? Uh, yeah, uh, okay. 16, 16, almost 17. God, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> So in the movie, at the very end, when they decide to wipe out all the vampires in the complex, and the silver goes, whatever the hell it is, goes through like the ventilation system, and it burns up all of the vampires at once, they turn to ash, just big piles of uh you know uh, uh smoldering ash as it were the entire third act with parker posey it's basically her torturing ryan reynolds the entire time at the very end when all the vampires are turned to ash including her he is laying there tortured barely able to move she is this big pile of ash next to him his tormentor and he just has this quiet, under-his-breath moment where he starts to get up and he says something like, stay there, I'll get help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it so much. That is like, that, that is totally, you're absolutely right. That was his tryout for Deadpool. It would take him another decade to get there, but it was worth the wait. It was. Also, I really sort of like when uh, the interaction with like uh, Triple H and his dog, and he's like, have you seen my dog? It is. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love that 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 goddamn little pomeranian with the mouth that opens like there's just something about when you take a cute animal and turn it like into like a total beast like I just I can't resist it I just cannot but no I mean it it pales in comparison to the first two Blade movies but I still love Trinity. Can I admit something that I never thought would be the case when I saw the first trailer for it? I wound up the pilot is dodgy as hell. But I wound up enjoying the hell out of the Blade TV series. It's not bad, right? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It it infuriates me that it ends on a cliffhanger. Yeah. But, uh, 
you know, I'm always going to wonder what the hell happened there. But, like, Sticky Fingers? Actually pretty damn good in the role. He's certainly no worse than Wesley Snipes. And Wesley Snipes, as much as I like those movies, like, he's not always fantastic in those movies. But, uh, no, I, I think the TV series is actually really underrated. Yeah, it's funny. I actually think uh, Wesley's, like, best Blade performance is in the first one. The yeah. second one, I feel like he disappears a little bit. Yeah. And because you're kind of missing a little bit of, because he's kind of funny in the first one. He's like a little bit snarky, a little bit, has a little bit of an attitude to him. And he's a little more withdrawn in the second one, um, which is fine because the second one freaking rules. Um, so maybe it was just, I don't know if it was just like, he was just so dour with the character by the time the third one rolled around where they like, they suddenly start bringing back the attitude and he just wasn't having it. It's a bummer because he kind of ends up being sort of one of the bigger dragging elements of that, that third movie. Yeah. Which is a bummer. And even a friend of mine pointed out, like, I, I don't know that I ever would have noticed this, but I remember watching the movie. I previewed it at the movie theater that I worked at at the time when it came out. We, we, you know, spliced together the 35 millimeter print, five different or six different reels together, ran it onto the platter. We ran it after hours to watch it. And we walked out, and I was kind of disappointed, but I didn't hate it. You know, I, I had fun with it. And the first thing that he said when he walked out, he was like, hey, do you know why Wesley was uh, wearing that red shirt under the black the entire time? I was just like, wait, what? And he was like, <laughs> he was like, he wasn't working out. He let himself go. That's why. <laughs> and he's like, watch, watch the movie again. Pay attention. He didn't work out for this movie. He didn't give a damn. And you can also tell that in his performance. And damn it, when I eventually, because I'm a completist, I picked that movie up on DVD and I paid attention. I don't think he was wrong. He probably was not. And I'm wondering if that was sort of the thing, because Ryan Reynolds was very much obviously working out during that era. Oh, my God. He was the skinny dude from Van Wilder. And then all of a sudden he's like a beefcake in friggin Trinity. Yeah. And (laughs) then the point where. It I think the next of, year was an Amityville horror. I was going to say he's ripped in Amityville. <laughs> that, that's the one thing I, you know what I, the Amityville remake to me is better than the original. Thank you. I, I agree. Ad- I, I 100% agree. It's always been one of my favorite remakes. I don't know why it's not talked about more. I love it, that movie. It is friggin' superb. And the only issue that I take with the entire film, which I otherwise think is Damn, they're fucking perfect for what it is. It's great. Is the fact that normal blue collar working class dad has that body, which they <laughs> have to show off. I'm okay when with he, it. When he runs outside into the freezing cold in like his little pajama pants. Yeah, but like if you were shooting a movie and your protagonist had that body, would you not show it off? I mean, I, personally, if I made a movie as good as that and that's what I cared about, I, I tried to create a reality that portrayed these people as a struggling, like, uh, working-class blue-collar family, I would have covered that dude up in a fat suit before I let him strut <laughs> out looking like that. <laughs> when was that dude hitting the gym, Paul? He's cutting, chopping a lot of wood, though. That burns well, a lot every of damn day. Yeah, chopping wood, man, that's, that, why that's was, a workout. Why was he not drinking water? Like, somebody tell me. Just, <laughs> come on. Well, he was being manipulated by an evil house. Yeah. <laughs> I do if I, love get, if I could get abs like that, I would totally let an evil house manipulate me. Oh, me too. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bring it, catch him. 
Yeah. Originally, uh, Paul, you Catch mentioned earlier, like that there was sort of like a ritualistic nature uh, to Prince of Darkness. I'll segue us back into the movie a Thank little you. bit. Or we, Thank you. Or we could talk about Ryan Reynolds' abs for another 20 minutes. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, but they're very, like, now we see Clove kind of setting up uh, Alan for this whole shebang. Um, and it's and it's really interesting. It's very purposeful the way that he moves around the room. If you watch, like the way that he takes the shroud off of the 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 tomb, and like everything is just very precise with how he moves, uh, which is is really interesting. I think. Do you think they cast him just because he was the best actor? Was he a bit of a name, or do you think they cast him with an eye toward the fact that he damn near looks like he could be Christopher Lee? There's a very Christopher Lee quality to him he's in this like movie. Christopher, he's Christopher Lee meets Lurch. Yes, yeah. yeah he looks, looks like gaunt. Christopher Lee from... And, uh, um, he looks like Lee from The Whip and the Body. Yeah. Well, and this was... You have to remember, too, for the time this was made, this was probably the most graphic thing they'd done as a studio up until this point. Um, this was something they never would have dreamed of doing even just a couple i mean yeah think about what three years before this the the bbfc had like chopped curse of the werewolf to bits and curse of the werewolf is like nothing compared to this sequence so this was this was them sort of trying to go into the next generation of horror make something shocking so they can make a name for themselves again within that gothic subgenre that they had sort of let go of because at this point Hammer was no longer the only company really known for gothic horror. You had Roger Corman had already made all of his Poe movies for the most part. Um, you know, Roman Polanski was making gothic horror. Hitchcock was sort of in that realm. Mario Bava was making fairly gothic horror. You know, this was them trying to sort of reclaim gothicism, but bring in a incredibly violent twist to it. And this was, uh, was it Les Bowie, I think, did the um, the makeup here for, um, like, Dracula's actual resurrection, frame by frame, uh, which was sort of like in the same vein of, like, the 30s, 40s universal horror. I do love the fact that uh, Hammer Horror leaned towards sort of the Italian aesthetic for blood. Yeah. Um, what because they call it, well, Kensington Gore? Yeah, I believe so. Um, but it's, it's interesting because it was like what we sort of think of as like what traditional blood looks like in, on screen is very much sort of a Dick Smith creation. Um, because up until Dick kind of was able to sort of find that perfect formula, so to speak, um, most of it just looked really like, you know, like this, like a little cartoony, a little too red as yeah. Randy would say in scream, even though when he's, we're stabbing in Halloween, there's no blood. Um, definitely doesn't still bother me 25 years later. Um, <laughs> that, that idiosyncrasy, it's fine. It's all fine. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because like, I've seen a lot of people who complain about it, like, oh, it's too much. But it, to me, it's kind of charming in a way. Um, just because it makes you, it sort of makes you feel like you're watching a movie from like another world in a way. Cause yeah. everybody, it's so realistic these days. And I just, I, I like that, like that bright pop of blood. So I do too. Yeah. I, yeah. It, ta- it takes you into their world and it's striking and it feels more stylized and artistic, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, I would agree. I love it there. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, there's an artifice to it. Like it's, it's, 
It's not trying to trick you into this... thinking that it's real at all, but I just, I, oh my god, what a shot. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I love the hand crawling out like a spider. And that is Christopher Lee's hand. The man could have played, uh... It's also <sighs> could have played the only thing. time Dracula's resurrected naked. Other than his ring. Usually he comes back fully clothed. <laughs> but there he had clothes set aside for him and he's sort of like brought back to life in a naked body, which I think is interesting too. Again, tying into that sort of ritualistic nature. I was reading somewhere that it was sort of the inversion of the resurrection of Christ is what they're kind of going for. Um, and that the man that they sort of sacrificed his secularness kind of made him the perfect complacent uh, sacrifice uh, sort of his unawareness of the evil around him made him kind of the ideal thing to kind of die in the, in the resurrection of pure evil. Interesting. Yeah. I dig that. Here, here we have Barbara Shelley's great moment. <laughs> you, uh, you will ever wonder, and these are drunk musings certainly at this point, Sure. Um, but uh, Prince of Darkness. Where's uh, where's the King of Darkness? Is there a Queen of Darkness? What is the hierarchy of darkness when it comes is to... It, is it Satan himself? Yeah. Oh, well, but, but isn't Satan himself also the Prince of Darkness? So, you know, I'm just wondering, like, where's, uh, you know, at what point does the Prince ascend? <laughs> You're saying what would it take for Dracula to become King? Yes, <laughs> I want, you know, I, I, there are two movies that I've wanted when it comes to Kings, uh, for ages. I want to see John Milius's King Conan already. I think we deserve that after 2020. And, uh, you know, I would watch the hell out of a movie called King Dracula. I'm just throwing that out there. Mm. Sounds like a script that needs to be written. <laughs> I love how earlier when Barbara Shelley was looking at him, there was like a moment of a hint of a smile. Like when she was terrified. Yeah, she's like, "Mm, this might be okay, but my husband's still dead and bleeding from the neck, but (laughs) there's this vampire in front of me, and, you know, it's Christopher Lee. It's not so bad. We all have to move on at some point. We do. He'd want me to be happy. (laughs) He he truly is a terrifying figure, Lee, in this movie. Like, this is this, I think this is the scariest he ever is, is Dracula. I would agree with that. I would agree. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I definitely came around in the movie this time around. Like I, there, there were all the things that seemed to bug me about the previous viewings of this movie kind of fell away with this. And I really appreciated more than anything, Lee's performance in this. You know, I, I always thought that he, because he didn't have any dialogue and because those stories kind of persisted that he wasn't willing to speak the dialogue in the first place. I, I always kind of, I was a bit disappointed that we didn't get the same Dracula that we did in Horror of Dracula, which is one of my favorite versions of the character ever. And, you know, I I always felt as a result that his being silent was kind of him phoning it in. Now, keep in mind, it's been about a decade since I last saw before this. I do not revisit the Dracula movies in the same way that I do the Frankenstein cycle. But watching it again this time, he really is putting in a magnificent performance, even though he's not speaking. Maybe I appreciated him in this movie more after having watched Nicolas Cage in Willy's Wonderland. There's something to be said about a silent performance that can uh, command the screen. Yes. Yeah, and I certainly think that it does here. 
Well, and like in horror of Dracula, he doesn't talk once he's revealed to be a vampire. Like <laughs> all of his dialogues prior to that. No, so but, it's but, not like he's talking a ton in the other movie is, anyway. But but you would agree though that the first half of that movie, all the heavy lifting is done there. I mean, you know, when they give us that first image of Lee as Dracula and horror of Dracula, you know, what must audiences have been thinking at that point when really all that they knew was what? Maybe Nosferatu if they'd seen it, but most likely Bela Lugosi, right? It was Lugosi, yeah. It was Lugosi. So when you see Lee bounding down the steps and being a warm host and being charming, you know, at the very beginning, that does so much for redefining the character and, you know, Lee being able to make Dracula his own. Um, I, I think a lot of goodwill is bought in those early scenes with him so that he can keep silent in the last half of it. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, and I agree, but I think that part is done. You know, I think if we're doing a sequel, the best thing to do is sort of, like, move beyond that, use that as sort of a backdrop, and kind of pursue different avenues with the character now, which the later films kind of abandon, obviously. Um, I'm I'm glad he didn't... Looking at the entire series, I'm glad that he did do the feral Dracula once. I appreciate it. Well, now. yeah, you, you can't, you can't have stay. nine movies where, he, where yeah. he's just a feral monster. That doesn't really work. Why won't but... he say anything? Did he chew through his tongue <laughs> during the resurrection? What the hell is going on? But I think it really works in this. I don't know. I mean, my, my takeaway this time around, I, it, it is definitely much, much higher in my rankings than it was before. Same here. I mean, it was always higher than the Satanic Rites of Dracula, being honest. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and watch all of them through. I just upgraded all of them to blue anyway. So uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting uh, Taste of Blood of Dracula, Scars of Dracula. I've always loved 80, 1972. I've always not really cared that much for Satanic Rites. And uh, it's been a good long while since I've seen uh, the final one, you know. Uh, oh, Seven Golden Vampires is amazing. I, I, I am a huge fan of that movie. And it's a damn shame that it is such a good film and that Lee tapped out for that one. It's like, man, if you could have just stuck around for but one you more. Do get you do get Cushing in like a leading role, like a ton of Cushing in that movie. And he is so good in it. It's it's so fun. I love that movie. I'll Heather, Cushing if I... pre-pushing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologize. That was solid. <laughs> that belongs in a t-shirt can we can we talk about bernard robinson robinson ah, i can't talk robinson's sets set design and repurposing of the studio for this movie because it's beautiful yeah i so because i know that they were shooting um rasputin around the same time that they were shooting this and i i haven't seen rasputin like with yeah with Within so Bray Studios was getting too expensive, and with their new partnership with Fox, they had to to deliver under a certain budget over the films they were making. So they had a deal where they had to make four movies within the span of like six weeks, all at Bray, with the same cast and crew for the most part. Um, and they would just have to redress within a matter of like days between films. They did uh, this, they did Rasputin, they did Plague of the Zombies, and they did The Reptile, all within about five weeks. That blows my insane. mind. It's insane. And, it, I mean, and it's Prince crazy. Darkness, 
Prince of Darkness 2 stands apart from all of those, which is kind of amazing. But when you start getting to, uh, oh, to, to, to the Plague of the Zombies and the Reptile, you can start telling that. Plague is yeah, so they... much better than it has any right to be. Plague is a very good movie. No, it, it's and... a good movie, but I'm saying, like, if you watch the two of those movies back to back, you're going to see yeah, a whole you, lot you of. Can, you can see, yeah, yeah, you can see some of the some of the holes and that's why they paired them like that's why prince of darkness was paired with plague <laughs> and, <laughs> and rasputin was paired with the reptile that way people in the theaters wouldn't immediately make that connection i wonder how many audience members back in the day you know pre-internet pre even like film magazines to a certain extent you know i i, I wonder how many just regular theater goers at any point were sitting there in the audience going wait a minute Right. <laughs> Hang on. Well, and like if, and that's the thing is they didn't expect people to be able to pour over these things on Blu-ray. You know, it's like, cause if you watch the, the Dracula films, there's like zero continuity with how the castle's laid out, with how any of the, the town is laid. You know, it just, none of it really works in terms of the geography, but they never thought that anyone would have the ability <laughs> to analyze it. <laughs> yeah, no, Definitely. I want to say though to this this sequence um, with uh, with Susan, I I really love this because one, it's lit gorgeously. Like I love yeah. the hints of red, um, but I just love the way uh, Barbara comes down that staircase, and she just feels like she's like like it's such a one eighty for that character. Um, it's actually I think it's like my favorite moment in the movie. Which is saying something because it's Christopher Lee, but I just think there's something really amazing about sort of this turn um, and this back and forth between the women. I just really love it. And that to me is what, you know, when I said earlier that I felt like Barbara Shelley's, you know, kind of bride here kind of sets the template. Like we've seen variations on the scene before, but this is the one to me where, you know, we've known this character and now she's become something different. She's still inviting, though, and she's playing on that. And yet we know there's a threat there and she's... She's playing a version of the character that she did before. But, you know, it, it, just that mix, I think, is something that you eventually see in, you know, any number of other vampire movies. Oh, yeah. my God, what a shock. Yeah. Right? There's the shock. Um, but it's great, though, because there's a point where she says you don't need Charles, which is so interesting because, you know, earlier you mentioned how she very much is sort of this prototypical woman in this society that's just, you know, she's happy to be married and she's just in, like, that relationship and really doesn't have any sort of sense of like ownership of her life. You can kind of tell like, she's just like there. Um, And the fact that she would declare, you don't need your husband again, is such a huge turning point um, that it just, it's such a a brilliant little stroke to the movie that really, I've always really loved that. It's so true. And, and there's, and again, a testament to Barbara Shelley's like abilities, like there's such a difference with how she just the expression she's giving and the way she's carrying herself in that scene versus like the earlier scenes, like there, there's a weight that's been kind of lifted off of her. Um, and there's an untethered sort of freedom to how she's carrying herself. So even though it's sinister, it also feels more like truthful, which is kind of interesting. You know, this is the point in the commentary when everybody just stops and appreciates what's going on on screen. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait, we got, we got swords and Christopher Lee. Hold on a second. This is the Every, problem everybody... when you do a commentary for a movie that everybody likes. A lot of times you just stop and watch it. <laughs> 
You're just like, this is so good. Um, but I agree with you, Heather. That is also my favorite scene. Um, the scene, yeah, the scene we just watched. Yeah, I still, like, in terms of how the film resolves itself, I still don't know if I agree necessarily with the logic of that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I've, I've learned to sort of just dismiss it. I'm like, okay, it's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think it, everything up to there is like, okay, yeah, we're right on the money. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it goes to some places as the film progresses. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I just, I think that, I think that Barbara Shelley kind of steals the movie. As much as I love Lee as Dracula, like, I, I think she gives the most impressive performance. I I would not disagree with that. I, I, I would also say there's, there's a, a, I was going to say, too, like, you could definitely see the influence of, like, her character on like somebody like Amy from Fright Night. Yeah. yeah. Like the the, oh, the blonde yeah. red hair yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. Something really cool about him using the broken sword piece to create a cross that I, I find that I love when people make crosses out of things <laughs> in vampire movies. It's it, especially when it's something that like was a weapon. Then the vampire's like, haha, I broke your weapon. And he's like, Oh no you've allowed me to make a cross like shit like that is great. I love the look on Lee's face there where he's just kind of slightly upset. Like his day isn't ruined, but he's just kind of upset with himself. He could have done better and he knows it. That's the look on his face. God, what a shot there too with a cloak. Uh, I think we have to bring back cloaks. Right. I don't know what purpose they serve, but billowing cloaks are very uh, commanding. I will say that. You know what? I read something the other day where they said that, uh, you know, the the previous pandemic in the early 20th century uh, did sort of lead to the Roaring Twenties. Everybody was cooped up. Everybody was afraid. And once it was all over, everyone not only wanted to get out, but they wanted to dress to the nines, right? You know, they they wanted the great Gatsby it up. And uh, I'm wondering if the same thing is going to happen after we're done with COVID, you know? And if it does happen, I got to tell you, I'll try on a cloak. I'll I will be, I will bedazzle the shit out of all my sweatpants. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> uh, I have lived in sweatpants like for the last year and I don't even care. I think honestly like I had to wear I wore jeans like when we had to go get our car in June. And I think before then the last time I wore jeans was for a junket in March, the beginning very beginning of March. Uh since then it's been uh leisure wear and I'm okay with it. Nice. See <laughs> I I I I've, I've still had to go out. I've never like I work in retail, so this whole time I've still been going out into the world, and so for me, pandemic has not meant not seeing people, but it's had a different kind of stress, you know. Oh god! It's like, it, so it's like I've I've experienced the stress of the pandemic through a different lens. Um, I do miss being able to go visit like my friends and family, though, you know, because my family lives in Chicago. Uh, my like my dad and my brother, that is. Um, obviously like my wife's family is, well, I guess not obviously my wife's family's here, so we can kind of, uh, see them to a certain extent. Um, but like, I haven't been able to see my dad or my brother this whole time. And usually I at least go there once a year and that's been pretty tough. So I'm excited to, uh, have that be an option again. <laughs> and are you going to wear a cloak when you go? I will wear a billowing clo- cloak, uh, and red contact lenses. <laughs> Just to kind of 
bring the ensemble together. <laughs> Paul, I gotta ask you, you know, one, you're a hero, and I think anybody is a hero who has had to continually work I'm not out all hero. of this. The hell <laughs> yeah. you're not. The hell you're not. Like you, you I am not sir. A hero. <laughs> bullshit. No, no, no. It's your birthday. I'm calling you a hero. You yeah, anybody, anybody out there who had to continually work throughout the course of the past year, who didn't have the option of sort of removing themselves. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate that I've been stuck in quarantine, but at the same time, like I also feel very fortunate that I was able to do that, you know, as it were. Um, I, I, but you know, if, if you were out there, you know, dealing with customers and whatnot, my hat's off to you for providing for your family and probably what was the, most difficult year that any of us may face anytime soon after this. But I got to ask in dealing with that hardship, just out of curiosity in a way that uh, does not pertain whatsoever to the movie that we're chatting about. We've gotten to that point in the conversation. <laughs> I got to ask Paul, because I've always been curious, what percentage would you say at a guess of the customers that you've dealt with and come into contact with were anti-maskers? Uh, well, now or six months ago? Yeah. A what the hell, both? Now it's probably like 15%. Uh, six, seven months ago, God, it was 60 to 60%, 70% of people didn't want to wear a mask, had a problem with it, Holy shit. pissed off about it, uh, would make crazy accusations. When it first went down, and our store was closed, but we were doing like curbside stuff. You know, I would go outside to sort of like help manage that. And I would have a mask on and I would be, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I manage a store. So I, part of my job is to also make sure my employees are safe. Um, and so I would, you know, ensure social distancing was happening in a respectful way. I wasn't like, you know, get back, you know, I was just more like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. And, you know, and I would have people like freak out when I would do that. Like, oh, what? You think I'm going to make you sick? And oh, you, you don't want to be near me. And I'm like, well, well, sir, we're we're just trying to, just trying to stay safe. You know, but people people get very outraged very easily and take things that aren't personal personally, um, and make a big to do about them. And I think part of that is people are used to um, being able to exert control over retail workers and mm. and and dominance. And when that was taken away from them, uh, they some of their reactions was to get even more uh, what they might perceive as dominant or controlling, and that that caused a lot of problems. Um, so, I mean, there was there was definitely uh, a lot of resistance to masks, uh, especially early on or midway through the pandemic. Now it's more common practice there, but I will say to these days, when you do meet one that is an anti-masker, they are so much more intense about it. Like they will fight tooth and nail. we've had to call police on people because they oh refuse God. to wear masks. And the funny thing is, you know, we, we offer other avenues. Like if they come to the door and they don't want to wear a mask, we say, okay, well, you know, we, we have other ways we can help you. We have over-the-phone support. We have online for pickup. You can just go into the parking lot, go online, select an item, buy it. We'll bring it out to you. If you don't want to wear a mask, that's totally fine. We can help you in other ways, but we we, we can't let you into the store. Like, so we're, we're doing – we're not just going get out of here. 
You know what I mean? Like we're, we're trying to be reasonable, but like their reaction is like, well, you can't make me do that. That's illegal. Blah, 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 blah. You know? And like, Oh, I'm free. Uh, it's a free country and you don't want to help me. And I'm going to put this on Twitter and online. And then they start threatening you with social media and they're going to record you and all this shit. And it's like, buddy, we're just, we're just trying to help you. <laughs> like, please make this easy. Like, <laughs> but it, it's shocking what some people will do for, I guess, like, whatever principles they think they're defending. I don't know. It's crazy. Would you say after this past year, and this question I'm posing to you both, Heather, what would you say after this past year? Would you say you have about the same as or less faith in humanity after what you've witnessed? Uh, Less faith. Same here. Paul. I really, I really thought, honestly, I'm sorry. I don't mean to jump in where Paul was going to talk, but I really thought like when we were starting to go through this, like there was sort of that initial like, okay, guys, we just have to buckle down and we're going to get through this. Yeah. So I really thought like this was going to in some ways bring out the best in us. Like we can, we can do this. We can stay home. We can not be selfish. And like we could, we could really get through this and think of other people. Um, and then it just made me realize like about three weeks into it, I was like, no, it's, it's just showing how selfish and terrible people are. Like when we were like just trying to grocery shop here in LA and people were like clearing out stores. And I saw people who would like cut off old ladies in the grocery store with their cart to try to get some pack of hot dogs or some crap like that. Like it was, it was kind of ridiculous at first. And, you know, I mean, there's parts of it that do give me some hope because I think the people who, who do have good intentions, um, they've been very positively influential on a lot of people, but you know, it's it's made me realize how stupid a lot of people are too. And that makes me a little bit sad because you'd think, I don't know, we're in the, you know, at last year we were in the year 2020. You'd think people would have more faith in science and that's just not the case. And that kind of drives me crazy. Like, I don't understand how like I could grow up with a, with a mom who got me all my vaccinations, everything like that. Because that's what you do. And then, like, now it's like, well, I'm not going to take the vaccine because I don't know what it's going to do. And I'm just like, I don't understand where you're like, I don't understand where your head is at. Like, you know, it's just a lot of a lot of dumb people have sort of come out of the woodworks. Well, there are microchips this. in the vaccine. So. That's fine. Microchip. You think you think our, <laughs> our cell phones aren't already tracking everything we do as it is like, come on, we're already being tracked, whether it's in our cars or in our phones. Like the yeah. government already knows everything they want to know. So if they want to implant a chip in me, go ahead. They're going to be bored. (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to watch a lot of horror movies if they're watching what I'm doing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, yeah, 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 a lot of the people who do seem to level that charge, like, oh, there's going to be vaccines, you know, the microchip shot into me and Lord God Almighty, big brother and all that. It's like, do you really think your life is so fucking interesting that the government has any interest in what you're fucking doing? Like, I really? Please tell me. The fact that you are objecting so much probably means you should be put on a watch list if you're that fucking paranoid. Um I, it blows my mind. It, there's so much, not just this past year, not just the pandemic, but honestly, the last four years, like I, I, I've lost a little bit of faith in humanity. I've become a little more of a pessimist. I, I don't want to be, uh, but I just, I, I thought going, even, even after the first, what, damn near a decade of this uh, century having started out, you know, we had to deal with the fucking war and whatnot and, you know, uh, terrorism, all the shit that we had to put up with, but there was still the feeling 
that we were moving forward even by inches. You know, there, there was a feeling that there was some optimism that we were maybe uh, getting better. You know, and it's just after the last four years, I realized that not only is that not true, not only was I really fucking gullible when it came to that, but we're, we're, we're so much further back than I thought we even were say at the turn of the century like i we're there are swaths of this country that are still stuck back in the 50s and 60s and it breaks my heart because it makes me wonder if we're ever going to move beyond that you know or if those people will ever move beyond where you know sadly they're currently stuck you know you talk about and i'm not trying to in a horrible punny you know obviously obvious sort of way like tie it to the movie that we're talking about but we did talk about you know, the potential for Dracula being a religion, being a cult, you know, people being swayed by that. Uh, that's honestly where it feels like we're at right now. And it feels like there's no getting out of it. It feels like they're always going to be there. And that's just, it's its really depressing and kind of defeating in a way, you know? I i just wonder how, how much fighting is left to be done, you know? How much change is left to be made before we get to a point where we thought we probably should have been already. Yeah. It also makes me realize, like, if you think about, like, what the world went through, like, say, like, something like World War II, when all, you know, again, when you have all these countries who are just trying to, like, get through and survive, and they were asking people to give up, like, portions of food and tires and metal that they had around their house, and they were telling people, especially, like, in UK and France, like, at night, turn off your lights so that way the bombers can't find your, your villages and things like that. And people did these things. They selflessly did these things because it was in the interest of the greater good. And like, do you think where we are at at society now, if people had to do those things now, do you think they would do them? Because I don't. No, they wouldn't. And that's really sad. Like all, all, and gosh, we're getting on like, I'm getting on like a soapbox. All we had to do was stay home. Like, unfortunately, the government failed us in a lot of ways in terms of not giving us the infrastructure to do that and do it safely and do it in a way that didn't disrupt you know, the economics of the situation for everybody, but like just on the basic human level of the, the very minimal things that you needed to do to ensure that you could survive this, others around you could survive this and people that you like, you could come, come, you know, cross paths with could get through this and they couldn't do it. Like people just can't do that. They can't do the bare minimum. And to me, that's so frustrating because like, I, I just don't understand. Like I would, if, I have a neighbor like right across the hallway from me who's like in her 80s. Like she's lived in my apartment building, I think, for like literally almost 40 years. Like I would feel like I don't know what I would do if like I somehow brought this home and somehow got it, gave it to her. Like to me, that would be like the ultimate failing of me as a human being. And I just don't understand how more people aren't motivated that way. Like they just don't care. So like, but I'm with you. Like, I want to get to Vegas one day. I want to go party and hang out and just be in the crowds again. Like, it sounds weird because I'm like, I'm old. I'm older than both of you. But like, one of my favorite things to do is like to go to like electronic music shows, um, which the average age is like 21 at these things. But I don't care because I just, I disappear <laughs> so... into these large crowds of people. And I just miss that. Like, I miss yeah. going to a show and forgetting about life and just being like ridiculous and dancing about around a bunch of 21 year olds. Like, I don't know. Like I'm just, I just want to go back so, to raving, man. <laughs> what I'm hearing is we're all going to Vegas when this is all over. I think there's a, I think, I think collectively we are all going to meet up in Vegas. Let's all go to Vegas. You know, we, Paul, I've I never, I've I... never been to Vegas. So I would go, I would go just to go at least once. 
I'm only see. I'm not a gambler. I'll get in the car now. <laughs> you know, there's so much, and it sounds like I sound like the tourism board, but I'm like, I there's so much you can do in Vegas without the gambling. Even if you don't like, if you want to, that's awesome. And there's plenty of good places to do it. I recommend you go to the old uh, strip as opposed to the new strip. That's where you make your money. Um, but there's plenty to do there without having to, to to gamble any sort of money too. So I think collectively, I think we all need to get all the horror people together. For yes. one fun weekend, and we just take over Vegas. You know, I've said, Paul and I have talked about this before, but the idea of having, like, and I think I mentioned it to John Squires once, too, but I was like, once this is all over, we need to have, like, a horror community convention where it's not about people signing autographs or buying shit, nothing like that, but literally just renting out, like, a floor of a hotel or a convention center or something like that, and then just hanging out and drinking with one another and watching movies. Like, Talking. yeah. I, I, I need that. <laughs> I never knew how much I needed film festivals in my life. And again, it sounds so stupid because like I realize like how lucky I am in the job that I do because I, I get to go to festivals. But like and I was really grateful um, that Sundance went virtual this year because it gave a lot more people opp- opportunities to see movies than they normally do. And I really hope moving forward that they do keep the virtual component alive. But like. I will tell you, like, that first day of sort of settling in and watching Sundance movies from home felt really weird to me because the last festival I went to was Sundance last year. And it was right as everybody started talking about this flu that was going around in China and nobody realized that apparently coronavirus was, like, running rampant at Sundance because everybody gets sick there anyway because, like, 90% of the people that come there are people from L.A. who aren't accustomed to the cold, so they get sick anyway. But, like, last year, like, in 2020, like, every, there was, like, it, it really started hitting people hard to the point where people actually, like, left early. Like, I had, like, two different, like, sets of interviews that canceled because talent went home because they were so sick. And then I come to figure out most likely they had COVID-19. Mm, um, so yes. I feel really lucky in the res- that respect that I, I'm such an awkward person at festivals usually where I kind of keep to myself that, like, I kind of sidestepped all of that because I don't really – I drive myself – I take a shuttle where I don't sit next to anybody. I kind of stand in line with a big backpack. So I'm not next to people usually. And I usually have my arms out in front of me because I'm like that and weird. Um, and I don't really hang out with a lot of people. So I, I was, you know, my antisocial skills really paid off. Um, but I missed being in those theaters and being in the line and hearing the, the discussions. And like, even last year, like when Fantastic Fest came and went, like, I, it was, I was, again, I was grateful Fantastic Fest was online, but boy, did I miss that environment. And then again, like, save in a, in a perfect scenario, like, we're past this, and they can do Fantastic Fest in person in September. How fucking weirded out are, are we all going to be going to yeah, this thing? Yeah, it will be weird. I, <laughs> like, I want to hug I, people, but I don't know, do I hug people? Like, Yeah, like, I think there's going to be a weird sort of period where everyone's not sure how to handle themselves. I mean, and I'm speaking as somebody who, I've only been to one film festival ever, and it was Fantastic Fest in 2019, where I met you uh, in person, and and that was a blast. Like, it was really cool, like, getting to know people I had only ever met on Twitter, hanging out, like, seeing movies together, talking about the movies, like... It was a really like revelatory experience for me because it, it was one of the first times where I felt like really like a part of it, you know, a part of that sort of scene, but also like connected to these people that I've always sort of chatted with online. 
And I think it's, it's a special thing that, you know, I want to be able to do again. Um, but I, I also think that there's going to be a little bit of growing pain with getting back into a social environment post pandemic. You know, I think we're, we're all going to be a little standoffish in some ways. Yeah. I also feel like too, like, cause I'm somebody who does like junkets and stuff here in LA. I don't think we ever go back to traditional junkets. Also, can I point out like, how come in Hammer movies, they always kind of like stake people in their stomach and never in the actual heart? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, is, I, it too, is it too suggestive to go near the boobs? <laughs> I don't know. It's just you, well, you watch and it's like, yeah, they got her in the liver. Like when yeah. we, 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 uh, we were talking about other things, but we kind of missed the scene where they like held her down and staked her. That was the first time that they'd staked a vampire on screen that wasn't like asleep in a coffin where they had to like hold her down while she was struggling and stake her. And it's sort of very, and the fact that it's like a bunch of men doing it and she's struggling elicits some very sort of dark, you know, things uh, and metaphors for like what they might be doing to her, especially given that they're like driving a stake into her against her will. So that drew a lot of problems with the censors at the time. That was actually the scene that caused the most sort of raised eyebrows with the censors I was reading. And they wanted them to cut most of it out. You know, at some point they should have just come up with the idea of the vampire turning to dust straight away when they were sick. Oh my god. Okay, I was making a <laughs> dumb joke there about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but Paul, I just remembered uh, we, we need to do a little uh, cleanup here, sir. Um, so, for <laughs> for listeners wow. okay. of uh, what well, we do, um, for listeners of this show who caught last week's episode, we took a break from uh, the Hammer Pub to talk about the Beach Girls and the Monster with Scott Foy. Now, that was, uh, so we weren't doing Hammer Pub, but we did do kind of the pre-movie conversation for a moment, or maybe it was post-movie, I don't know, at some point we talked about stuff, I think it was post-movie. Anyway, for whatever reason, last Monday evening when we were recording, the conversation touched on <laughs> Joss Whedon. And Paul and I kind of drove the conversation a bit where we were talking about this stuff that Joss Whedon had done. Thing is, this was late Monday. And so the conversation begins with me saying something like, oh, what was it that Whedon did again? Um, I can't really remember. Uh, was it that? What, was it something terrible? I don't even remember if it was that. And then you told me about the, the thing with his wife and how he acted on that, blah, 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 right? That episode didn't air until last Friday. <laughs> long after <laughs> Charisma Carpenter posted like what she posted about him and Sarah Michelle Geller and Michelle Trachtenberg, Michelle Trachtenberg's was especially harrowing uh, for its implications. Um, you know, and Anthony Head and Eliza Dushku and everyone basically, well, not everyone, but most everyone who was associated with uh, Buffy's heyday sort of chimed in to support Charisma Carpenter and also share their own issues that they've had with Joss Whedon. I just wanted to make it completely clear to listeners who caught that episode and didn't know what the fuck was going on when Paul and I were sort of skirting past all of the really horrible shit that had come out on Whedon. I just wanted to point out that, in fact, when we had that conversation, that information was not available. Uh, after all of that stuff has come out, I will point out that as much of a Buffy fan as I am and an Angel fan, and I love Firefly and Serenity and all that stuff... Let me just say, fuck Joss Whedon. I hope he never works again. Like, I, I was such a fan of that guy, and it's so deeply disappointing to hear all the stuff that's come out on him in the, like I said, the past week. I, yeah. it's, 
it's funny because, well, not funny, but like it's, uh, I remember, again, I, when I first moved out here, I got to work at a special effects shop and one of the shows that they worked on was Fringe because uh, my boss had actually worked on Buffy and Angel. And uh, in fact, I have one of the poker chips from the poker episode of Angel when. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm, Lauren was running the poker thing or whatever. Um, so anyway, I have one of those, which is kind of fun. But anyway, so one day we had we had a bunch of appliances that had to go over to Fringe, and I was like, "Oh, I'll take them over." Like I figured, hey, it's cool. I get to go on the Fox lot. That'll be fun. And I remember going into the building, and I was in the elevator, and then in walks this guy. Elevator door shuts, and I look up and I realize, "Oh my God, I'm in an elevator with Joss Whedon," and I was freaking out because I was like a huge fan I was like oh my god okay I didn't say anything I just stood there with my appliances um so it really sort of taints that whole I was like oh god like why like just why Joss Whedon why did you have to be like such an uber creep but it was interesting because I saw a lot of people saying like well why aren't the men from all these shows speaking up and then somebody did a thread on Twitter of like pretty much all of the men from those shows are kind of garbage too uh, because I believe Nicholas Brendan got arrested oh, yeah. for domestic violence recently. Um, yeah. Apparently there was a story, and I totally remember this story coming out um, years ago where David Boreanaz admitted that he used to whip his dick out all the time on set. And that was like a funny joke what? at the time. Yeah, it was, it was like something on Entertainment Weekly. Like, he just thought that was a funny joke. And then it also came out that apparently he sexually harassed an extra on Bones and ended up, I think, settling that out of court. So, which means there probably was some veracity to that uh, claim. And then I think um, James Marsters got in trouble for stalking, which I'm just like, oh, God. And then apparently Nathan Fillion, the woman that he works on with the rookie, like, he was, like, verbally abusive to her. To the point where, like, she had to have her management and a lawyer, like, get involved with, like, the studio heads because it was, like, so bad. And, yeah, so I'm just, like, so pretty much all the men of the Whedonverse are garbage. Why? I did see – somebody pointed out the only men that I've seen anything from were – Anthony Head did an interview where he seemed genuinely pained. And he was like, I just wish they had come to me. I wish I'd seen it. I wish I'd done something. You know, but it's funny that he said, I don't want to be the man who says, well, I didn't see that happening as though it didn't happen or who can say. Because you compare that to Alan Tudyk and what he said, which was essentially just that, well, that's not my experience. Joss has always been wonderful. You know, it's like, well, of oh, course, because you're a dude. Yeah, don't yeah. be that guy. It's yeah. just, it's, it's such, he's so damn disappointing it's like what well, eh. come on tucker you know better <laughs> <laughs> he was tucker right because tyler labine was dale wasn't he or was uh, do i have it backwards yes I, yeah i think I you're right know. yeah it's been so long that's another you know it's funny there were all of those movies that came out back in the sort of mid to late aughts that seemed to be setting up franchises that never actually happened. Where was the Tucker and Dale sequel? Where was the behind the mask sequel? Where, you know, there were, there were movies. It felt like we should have gotten more of, I don't know, but Oh my God, we're nearly at the end of this movie. It just occurred to me that Dracula is on the ice. So that brings up an interesting point. Dracula is on the ice. He is, which brings up to an interesting point because earlier in the movie, uh, Sandor slash Shandor uh, mentions how they that vampires can't deal with running water. Um, 
was that really a thing? Because I don't remember. Yes. I, I. It's, and I only know that because of Alan Moore's run on the Swamp Thing. There is a, uh, a really great. The Swamp Thing where basically there has been an entire town that's flooded. So there's an entire little backwoods town that is perfectly preserved under a lake. And there are underwater vampires living there. So when all these, imagine a bunch of kids from Camp Crystal Lake jumping into the water and splashing around and having fun above this town that is forever sort of buried underwater. And then you have these aqua vampires rising up and basically taking them out, right? And so Swamp Thing, at this point tapped into the green, I'm getting really nerdy here, I know, knows somehow, I don't know if John Constantine tells him about it or not, or if he just knew it because it's uh, elemental knowledge, but... (laughs) He basically uses his powers to shift the earth to get the water in the lake to spill out, which causes the water to run. And running water is representative of life, which is the opposite of vampires, which is a way to basically kill them. It's also also a purifying thing. Like the ancient, like uh, I have this book um, called Vampires, His Kith and Kin. And it walks through like all these like crazy vampire myths that are very old that you never see in movies. And pretty much anything that's considered a purifying force can defeat a vampire is is what it boils down to. If you want to get into some of the crazier like bits of vampire lore, believe it or not, if it's funny that we talked about Gerard Butler earlier, Dracula two thousand, Patrick Lucy. Super fun. Love it, love it. Oh yeah, and I, yeah. I also love the sequels, uh, Dracula two and Dracula three Ascension. I think Dracula two that Patrick Lucy also did is pretty great. Yeah, but they deal with a lot of the crazy lore right down to uh, like if you drop uh, rice onto the ground, the vampire has to count count every single grain before he can pass. Like I, I just love that. It's so damn nutty. I also yeah. like that this sort of solidifies that Dracula is not going to be killed by a simple staking in any Dracula movie. Like a stake he can be isn't destroyed, good but he cannot be killed. Right. It's like in the first one, it's sunlight. In this one, it's water. And then in future films, they never use a stake. They always have to find some interesting way to stop him that is just beyond just a regular staking. And I feel like this movie, I feel like this is the movie that sort of solidifies what the franchise is going to become. Versus the other two films, you know? Yeah. It really felt like, I mean, you noted The Kiss of the Vampire was initially meant to be the end of a trilogy, and it felt like, you know, it very well could have been. You know, we might as well have had Horror of Dracula, Brides of Dracula, and then one final capper. This movie has no interest in closing out a story. This is all about a reintroduction of the character that they know they're going to be giving us more and more of. Yeah. Yeah, and Fisher brings a very assured sort of direction to it um it's like i said to me this feels like a greatest hits of hammer it kind of hits all the beats all the tropes um everything's expertly made it's familiar in a lot of ways but it it goes into some new territory but not so new that it that it deviates from what you've seen before i don't know it's 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 a it's sort of a good comfort hammer movie. It would be a really good movie to show somebody that said, Hey, what's hammer all about? I feel like this would be a good sort of introduction. I agree. Maybe that's why I loved it so much. 
Yeah. Now that is, you know, hopefully a lot of people discover the movie as with every other movie that is coming out now, whether it be Mill Creek putting out a 20 movie box set or Scream Factory putting out all that they've done. It is worth noting that Dracula, Prince of Darkness and Frankenstein created woman long before Scream Factory put them out. They were given really handsome Blu-ray editions about a decade ago. I think we noted um, by Millennium Entertainment. And we talked about it a little bit before the show. But Heather, you actually have a bit of a connection I do. They were actually put out in 2013 and early 2014. Oh, wow. Yes. Not quite a decade. Not quite a decade, (laughs) but close. Yes. Um, Yeah, I was actually um, very honored to be asked to handle the the PR publicity for both of those releases, um, which is was an absolute thrill for me, especially because the first one was Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And I was like, well, this is absolutely perfect. Um, and I, they really were very, very great releases. I, I, they, you know, they came with like the cards, uh, which I still have. I, I still have, uh, copies of both, um, that I will never part with regardless of other iterations of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, like to be able to sort of work, um, on getting out these really great versions of these classic hammer films, like especially these two Dracula, Prince of Darkness and Frankenstein Creator Woman, which are, Definitely, I, I mean, I probably am only about like 10 movies in a hammer, but they're definitely in my top five of hammer. Um, like for me, that was like a huge thrill. So that was sort of like a little fun geeky project that I got to do. Um, I had previously worked with them on this movie called Spiders 3D, uh, which was directed by Tibor Takix. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The Gate. And so I got to know Tibor through that, who is just amazing and wonderful and a very lovely man. And they were really happy with what I did with that. And they brought me in for these. And I will say that I was, um, if I can toot my own horn, and I mentioned this earlier, that um, with Dracula Prince of Darkness, they were completely blindsided by the response that the movie got because it ended up selling like 40% over their projections uh, for the first wow. two weeks of release. And awesome. I was really happy about that. Like that I got to be a little, I got to have a little hand in that. So, and I have a ton, uh, we made a bunch of buttons for Dracula Prince of Darkness to give away uh. at the area booth, uh, at Comic-Con that year, which I still have a ton of those. Oh, I need, I need to, I, I will, need to get I will, one of those buttons. I will, right. I, will, I will gladly <laughs> buy a button. Uh, you don't even have to buy it. I, I swear. I still have like a big bag of them. Uh, cause I think we had like a thousand of them printed and I think I only gave like half of them. If you Over. could bring a couple to the Vegas get-together, that would be amazing. Oh, yeah. I, everybody at the Vegas get-together will get a button. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was like play buffet. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be the button girl. Um, but yeah, so just getting to be able, be able to be a part of that in a very indirect way uh, was a huge thrill for me. Um, you know, and it's, it's nice when I can sort of put that part of my skill set to work, but still do it within the realm of horror. Uh, that's always a thrill for me. Good deal. All right, I yeah. think we've had a pretty great chat about this movie. Um, I don't know. I, I like I said, revisiting it, I, I definitely found it uh, more uh, more appealing this time around. I, I I'm coming around on Dracula, Prince of Darkness. I, I I don't. It's not one of my favorites just yet, but I certainly like it more than I did uh, before. And you know, I, I I hope it just keeps getting better and better with every eventual rewatch. I I'll come back around to it someday soon. I think. Uh, Paul, how about you? I know you're a fan of the movie. How does it rank for you, Hammer wise? Like, well, it, it, in all of Hammer, or just in the Dracula cycle? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's a hard question, man. I, I really like it. I've always liked this movie. Um, you know, I I'm a fan of a lot of the Dracula movies. It it, it probably ranks pretty damn high. I, it's probably my third favorite after Brides and the original. Yeah, I, I really think this is a great movie. Um, I do love Brides and I do love the original. Um, I'm sorry. After that, it would probably Paul, be this. Paul, are you going to look me in the microphone right now and tell me that you think Prince of Darkness is a better movie than AD 1972 or the seven? Uh... The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Did we lose him? I think we might have lost him. Uh oh. Jinx. Hello. Still says Silence. The rain. The rain got him. Oh. You, you, oh, you hear us? Yeah. No, I thought you hung up on me because you were offended by my question. No, um... no, I, I'm, I'm not offended. I so I, I will tell you. Uh, I can't look you in the eye because we're on Skype. But um, what I'll say is, I, I think that while I find uh, AD incredibly entertaining, and again, Seven Golden Vampires is near and dear to my heart. I think uh, Dracula Prince and Darkness is just a better made film. I don't know. I mean, if I if I was ranking them, I'd have to go by like the Terrence Fisher of it all. And I just can't deny that it's it's incredibly well made. Um, I think by the time you got to those later movies, they were playing off of a silliness uh, that I'm cool with. But I don't think, you know, outranks something like Prince of Darkness, which is still sort of a well-made takes itself seriously kind of movie this is a drop dead gorgeous film like that is something if terrence fisher could do nothing else and he could do plenty but if he could do nothing else the man could shoot a gorgeous film oh yeah it's amazing by the way guys really quickly um because i just popped up on twitter and uh apparently the reason nicholas brendan cannot comment on the joss whedon allegations is because he's dealing with surgery for a paralyzed penis. What? Take with, I don't know. Take for take with that what you will. I have questions. I, I do too. They're I'm not questions you. I want to ask, but I have them all the same. Yeah. So, that is not what I expected you to say. No. Well, <laughs> just in case you wanted the update on, on Xander, there you go. Wow. Oh. Uh, uh, yes. So yellow I think, I think crayon. Yeah, I think the name of my band in high school would probably have been Paralyzed Penis, but... <laughs> penis. P-squared. Um, yeah, there you go. They rock. Wow. <laughs> so there you go. You can edit wow. the recording on Paralyzed Penis. Was it a participatory a injury? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even know how that happens. So, I, don't, I don't know that I want to know. Was it autoeroticism? Oh, like I have, I have questions again that I don't need answered, but they're gonna haunt me all the same. James, don't Google it because you're gonna you're gonna end don't up with it. a lot of searches that uh, you I'm don't going, want. To see. I'm 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 going down a Xander penis rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay. After well, after good uh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Godspeed. Yeah. That's uh, I will, I will that's choose to move forward unaware <laughs> of what actually happened. Oh, I'm filling you in next week. Man, this is this is this is the first forty-five oh, no. minutes of next week, sir. God, I'm yeah. sure it will be. Embrace yourself. So, uh, which <laughs> he he needed to do apparently and didn't. Um, God Almighty, just ouch. Anyway, um, 
we we wish him well unless uh he had it coming in which case uh well <laughs> anyway uh no i you know when it comes to paralyzed penises i think that's pretty much our sign to go ahead and wrap things up uh paul happy birthday again man happy Thank birthday you. paul what are you doing Thank for your you. birthday tomorrow huh what are you doing for your birthday tomorrow? What are the big birthday plans? Uh, hanging around the house with my kids and my wife, and it'll be fun. And I'll probably, I always, I start the day with Back to the Future. I'm going to watch Back to the Future in the morning, so that'll be fun. Yes. It's always my birthday movie. And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Just going to be a chill day. Good deal. All right, Heather, thank you so much for coming on. We had an absolute blast chatting with you. Paul, do I, do I speak for us both? I think Absolutely. we had a no, well, thank I'm, you guys I'm for having so me. So happy that you came on. <laughs> I, I'm, I was so glad to be asked. So thank you guys. It worked. This was when you get, you offered me two movies, and I was like, "Well, I have to pick Dracula, Prince of Darkness." So, well, that said, you are welcome back anytime. If there are any other Hammer movies you would like to chat, please let us know. We'd love to have you back on. Now, can I ask before we go, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can they keep an eye out for from you in the future? Um, so you can find me over uh, over at dailydead.com. Uh, I've also been doing some non-genre stuff here and there for Council of Zoom, uh, which has been really fun to sort of get to write about some stuff that I don't normally get to write about. Uh, I'm waiting to find out if a piece I submitted on Cobra Kai is a big pile of garbage or not. Um, God, which Cobra is not Kai indicative. is so good. Oh, my God, it's so good. Uh, which is not indicative of the editor there. It's just indicative of me and taking me six weeks to write it. Um, so yeah, I say do some stuff over there that's sort of non-genre. Uh, sometimes I pop up in the pages of Fangoria and, um, you mentioned Monster Squad earlier. So things have sort of evolved on the book front and I'll make this short and sweet. Um, basically, so Monster Squad was a book I put out in 2017. Um, initially everything was going to sort of get rebranded and those initial 20 interviews were going to be packaged with 80 other interviews for a, a book set through Fangoria. As we all know, things sort of shifted at Fangoria this summer. So I had to go and find a new publishing uh, situation, which I've actually teamed up with a really great publisher. Um, we had to sort of rebrand everything. Um, and they are going to be doing a four-volume set oh, wow. of interviews. Yes. And oh, cool. um, one of the things I was really happy about is that we're making it a little bit more affordable uh, for folks because... We are in a pandemic, and I don't want people to have to spend 30 to $40 on a single book. Um, to me, that's just sort of, it kind of defeats the purpose, where I feel like these stories should be shared as much as possible. So, in fact, we're recording Monday. Apparently, the press releases should be starting to go out tomorrow. Um, so, hopefully, there'll be some news on that, but would, which will include the new title and everything. And so those original 20 interviews are going to be included in this uh, set, but I'm breaking it up. So people aren't like spending money on the same interviews. So each book will have five of the original interviews and then 15 new uh, interviews. Oh, so that nice. way it's, it's something, you know, people aren't having to spend a, a ton of money on the same old, same old. So, but I couldn't leave those in the, in the dust as we sort of moved forward with the rest of the interviews. That's fantastic. I can't wait. Now, is there uh, is there any sort of information like, and again, this episode is going up on Friday. Um, any sort of info yet on uh, like release date? They, we, we are looking for the first volume should be out this summer. Cool. Um, and then the second volume should be out late fall. So hopefully in time for Christmas shopping. Um, and I guess I could mention it now. Um, 
The publisher is Dark Inc., who did uh, Tom Savini's book last year, uh, his big autobiography uh, book. And so they also picked up the rights to Steve Johnson's Rubberhead uh, series as well. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. And they also did Kane Hodder's um, autobiography uh, a few years ago as well. And so if you head over to their site, you can actually pre-order it. Uh, technically now, um, if I'm, I'm double-checking the website, I saw it on there because I had to uh, approve the copy on it. But it might be sort of hiding towards the and I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm looking to see. Maybe he re-hit it again on me. <laughs> if it's I up, think... I'll pre-order it tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm looking. I think they might have hit it again until... Oh, no, it is there. Uh, and it looks like there's actually a sale price right now. So if you go to uh, aminkpublishing.com and go shopping in the nonfiction section... You should find it there. I'm actually, I should be wrapping up this show right now. I know I'm going to be a bad host for a second because I'm punching that in as we speak. Aha, I found it. All right. Okay, and I am going to, uh, I'm not going to make listeners listen to me uh, pre-work this book. But... <laughs> Typing in my the, credit the card little... number. <laughs> right, yeah, please. Uh, if you have the, the three-digit code on the back, too, if you want to just mention that. Um, but the one cool thing about um, the books that I will mention is that all the covers were actually shot at Tom Savini's studio. Oh, oh cool. nice. So I it's kind love of... that first cover. That's awesome. It's it's a departure. It took me a little time to get used to because I really loved my Jack Pierce tribute from the original Monster Squad because he was like yeah. original Frankenstein was like one of my favorite things ever as a kid growing up and I love Jack Pierce's work so much. So it took me a little time getting used to the idea of going with something more realistic, um, but I think it's very reflective of what we're doing with these stories and sharing, you know, the lives and careers of all these amazing artists. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I cannot wait to check that out. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And again, uh, doors open anytime you would like to come back. Please do. Oh, absolutely. I would love to. I would love to be back on anytime you guys want. All right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Uh, scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Paul, tell them your handle, please. Uh, I am at the always modest Paul is great 2000 on Twitter. <laughs> you know what? It's your birthday. I'm not even going to give you hell for that this week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Until next time, thanks so much and have a great weekend.